welcome everyone to Davos Fingers episode 66. No chance and no choice. I'm Scatty and with me as always is Matt. Hey everybody. We're glad to be back here with you. Uh, totally. And we're just jumping right back in. So what will we be covering this week? A Feast for Crows and a Dance with Dragons. You know this already that we're reading them in a tandem special reading order uh, developed by our friends over at Game of Owns and called A Feast with Dragons. You can find it on our website. We've listed it all out at devilsfingers.com. Uh, you can also find it at afeastwithdragons.com. Anyways, the chapters specifically that we will be covering in this episode are from A Dance with Dragons, The Prince of Winterfell, and The Watcher. Then we're going to jump over to Feast, where we're going to do Brienne 7 and Jamie 6. And then we're going to saunter back on over to Dance for John 8. Should be a good one. That's right. That's right. And uh, we are, of course, back from break. Uh, when we've done this in the past, we've just given quick little updates of what we were up to over the break. Uh, obviously, we're kind of engaged on social media and stuff, so um, mm -hmm. not more than me, I suppose. <laughs> so you guys might know some of this stuff, but... Uh, we'll just give a, a quick little outline of the things we did. Um, for me, I was I, I played I played Scrooge in a, a local dinner theater production, uh, salty dinner theater shout out, and uh, had a blast doing it. Um, so that was the first thing, and I rekindled my passion for Dungeons and Dragons, mm -hmm. uh, which I am in February sometime I think going to. DM my first my first campaign with a bunch of my acting friends and uh hopefully it'll be really fun. I'm kind of nervous cuz it basically requires me to do a bunch of like writing and story building and world building and stuff. Um now so, for yeah, us I'm, heathens I'm tell us what uh DM stands for. Dungeon master. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. Some people call them GMs, game masters, uh game doesn't take place in a dungeon as much as it used to anymore, but um, dungeon is in a basement. Yeah, I'm just thinking like of a, Stranger Things. <laughs> uh, like, like imagine, uh, like you've seen in like shooter games that are like you're surrounded by like stone walls yeah. and it's dark and you're, yeah, you know, yeah. like a lo underground labyrinth almost. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they're like mazes and stuff. Gotcha. Yeah, so I'm uh, I'm excited and terrified. And, uh, yeah, that was, that was most of my break. Uh, you know, other than that, just family time and, uh, did very little other reading. Um, I finished off Name of the Wind, uh, again, and I, uh, and I started up a, a, a Star Wars book, um, from a different point of view, I believe is what it's called. It's basically like 40 little short stories that all take place within, uh, A New Hope, but are from various characters' points of view, Aunt Varu and, um, you get a you get a POV from the little red droid that explodes when when Uncle Lars tries to buy him. <laughs> um, so you, lots great. lots of different POVs from people that you'd never expect. You can get inside the head of the the uh, the rebel uh, ship captain that Vader strangles and what he's going through. It's pretty cool. It's a it's an interesting idea and it's got a lot of really good writers attached to it. So from a different point of view, check that out if you're like really into hardcore Star Wars and wanna get back to some of the original movies and like some different perspectives on those. So it's yeah, kind of fun. What an exciting uh, way to go about it. That's really cool. Yeah. And uh, what about you, Matt? Break time. Break time, man. I 
ate up every second of this break time. It was <laughs> it was needed. I'm happy to be back, but that break uh, allowed for a lot of time to do stuff that I felt I hadn't had time to do lately. Primary focus was on songwriting. Yay! And not yeah. for Davos Fingers. That's how I spent a lot of our last break was trying to write <laughs> jingles for this feast dance. Um, this one I wanted to focus more on my own music. And I was able to finish a few songs and I'm really excited about them. And, you know, we'll, we'll see how exciting I still am, how excited I still am after letting other people listen to them. But uh, I I sent you a little taste of one, but. You did. I loved it. Am I, I shouldn't release the title. Uh, That's, that's, that's your job. Uh, But I did really like it. It's, um, it, it's, it hits you, it hits you in the feels a little bit. Nice. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's a very much kind of almost like a coming of age moment. I loved it. Yeah. It's really good. I'm glad you liked it. Thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's kind of, it's a storytelling project that I'm kind of doing through song and I'm having a lot of fun doing it. Uh, speaking of storytelling, I read the name of the wind and it was great. Uh, it was, it was great. Um, my only, my only regret is that I, it took way longer than I thought it would. And I barely am like three chapters into the second book and I've just had to like put it down to start prepping for this again. And now the worry is that once I have time to read that, I will have forgotten everything. So I'll have to go back and read name of the wind again, but you know, it was good. It was great. I enjoyed it. Yeah. I got I got Leia for Christmas the 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 newer Leia book by Claudia Gray and yeah. I, I just looked at it and I'm like ah, I'm just not gonna have time to squeeze this in <laughs> and so I have to wait till yeah yep my uh, yeah my it just this just wasn't happening but yeah. uh, I think those are the the big but things you know what um, when come come August you know we'll have maybe uh, some some time if George doesn't doesn't get on the horse. Which he's not. Although, well, I don't know. I saw. I didn't click on it. I saw something about a leaked release date or something. Yeah. I don't know. I should have clicked on it, knowing we were recording tonight. But yeah, it was probably fake news. It would be all over our mentions and stuff on social yeah. media. I think if, if yeah. something legit came through, so. you'd think it would be. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, sure. There's other stuff we did. There's a lot of time with family, like you said. Uh, I was able to rewatch a bunch of Star Wars movies. Live tweeted some things about him. I had a great time <laughs> chatting with some of you guys on those little quibbles that we all have with the things we love. And uh, I think that's about it. Nice, nice. All right. Uh, moving on, just uh, a quick, uh, a quick reminder of some things we did actually do during the break that were related to the podcast. Uh, we did record a couple of films get fingered uh, since our last episode release. One on Indiana Jones. Uh, and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, which was a lot of fun to do, jumping back into the back catalog of of one of our you know classic classic adventure movie uh, that can be found on Patreon on our Patreon site for patrons only. And then of course we tackled the Last Jedi, uh, giving it um, well, well, let's just say they weren't the highest scores we've ever given. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I know, you know, actually I was surprised, Matt, how little flack we got for it. Um, 
but um, you got a lot of people actually saying they agree and stuff. But, yeah. Well, it's just um, about respect, you know. Sure. People feel yeah. one way, and we feel another, and it's cool. It's cool. Yeah. But it is yeah, funny so when that... you think that uh, Ghostbusters got a better overall film skip finger score from us than, than yeah. Star Wars did. <laughs> yeah, I stand by it. Um, uh, so that's also on the Patreon site. You can get it there. It is though open to the public. If you just go check out the Patreon site, you can find a link there to it. Yes. Uh, we decided to give that one out as kind of a, a Christmas freebie, if you will. And, uh, so it's, it's, it's free to the public and, uh, yeah, check it out. So that's, uh, patreon.com slash Davos fingers. Uh, if you want to check that out. Mm-hmm. And also we just wanted to, uh, announce that our friends, Brendan B. Fish and Poor Quentin have a new podcast that they're doing, also in the same vein as ours, a reread podcast. Uh, just a couple differences. It's called Not a Podcast, first of all. Not a Podcast, as in Not a Blog, I believe, is where they're going with that. Um, differences between our podcast and theirs is one, the, the hosts. We're not, wait, we're not on that? Not yet. Not no. yet. Um. Awesome, awesome a Song of Ice and Fire Luminaries. Great, great knowledge and insights into the series, as we know from the, the, all the different work that they've done in the fandom already, uh, poor Quentin and Brendan B. Fish. What they're doing with this project is it is a reread podcast where they're starting clear at the beginning in Game of Thrones, and they're doing one chapter an episode, uh, and they're just going in order. It is spoiler-filled, and also just goodness filled. So check it out. They're releasing, uh, their schedule is one episode a week, which I don't know how they do that, uh, <laughs> but good on them. So one episode a week, they've released one episode as of this recording, which is game of Thrones prologue. And then I know they just recorded the brand one chapter in a game of Thrones. So that'll be out soon. Uh, their Twitter handle is at, not a cast, a song of ice and fire. And there, I believe you can find all the links to their stuff. I know they're on Podbean. Uh, I know they're on iTunes. I know they're on the, what's the, um, Android platform. We're on it too. Google, Google play. That's the one Google play. Thank you. <laughs> mm-hmm. So you can find them on those platforms. Yeah. Yeah. I listened to the first episode as I know you did. And, uh, I was a little curious. I was like one chapter at a time. Are they like, going to stick to that but it, they go all over the place in, in yes, a good way yeah. um you know how things here are foreshadowing things that happen way later um it's it's a uh, it's good stuff yeah give it mm-hmm. a listen um yeah all right so uh let's let's move move right along we are spoiler free on this podcast davos fingers until the end of the podcast we do have that last segment there called davos after dark where we will just jump into Anything and everything uh, throughout the series, uh, but we'll warn you when it's coming up with a nice little jingle so you can get out of the way and duck and cover if you're not interested. So, <laughs> And if you want to contact us for any reason, uh, you'll find that we are very open and willing to chat. Now, we love we love talking to you guys, uh, so reach out to us. You can find us at DavosFingers.com. Our email address is WeAreDavosFingers at gmail.com. Twitter handle where we, we spend a lot of time is at Davos Fingers. Um, you can also find and like us on Facebook. 
Uh, as Skad mentioned, you can learn more about our Patreon program at patreon.com slash Davos Fingers. Okay. Did we get all the boring stuff out of the way, Skad? I don't think it was boring at all, Matt. I almost fell asleep. I was so bored. Wow. That'd yep. be a talent. If we could do this while we slept, that would be great because I could catch up on a lot of sleep. That'd be not, not the worst thing. A good three hours on a weekend night. Yeah, baby. Matt, maybe you just found out why we have so many listens. We're putting people put it in to fall asleep to, maybe. Yes. Know. It's the oh. smooth voices. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of one one little thing that I forgot to mention, uh during the break we did surpass six hundred thousand listens. We did. Yeah. Crazy. Can you believe that? Thank yeah. you guys. Yep. Thank you so much. Yeah, uh again, beyond our wildest wildest imaginations when we started this little thing in 2014 scad we started yeah. doing this in 2014 yeah it's been three and a half years almost um pretty crazy time flies yeah uh i think back then we thought that we would have <laughs> we would have had winds of winter by now i think we thought we'd have it like before we even got to feast dance um, yeah, it's crazy it, how things go. It's amazing. I mean, you know, we were all adults when we started this, we weren't children, but none of us <laughs> did the math to realize like, we're going to be here a while. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Um, okay. Let's do this. And at the rate let's we're going, we'll be, uh, fighting off grandkids to record podcast episodes. So. <laughs> well, we'll see about that. <laughs> Uh, it's more that's more about the rate George is going than ours. Sure. Yep. Oh, that's what I mean. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh well let's dive right in. So our first chapter, like we said, that we're going to cover is a dance with dragons, the Prince of Winterfell. Here we go. His daddy lost the war, so he's living in the north. Now he's almost stuck between being a kraken and a wolf. Yes, the young Greyjoy. With a smile so slow, put an arrow through your eye. Yes, the young Greyjoy. Make a lady scream and a want to be a king. It's the Greyjoy. Loyalty speaks, but there's something there that rings. It's the Greyjoy. Okay, well, it's the wedding day. Yay! Ramsay Bolton and Arya Stark at beautiful Winterfell. Uh, as a former ward of the Starks, Theon Greyjoy is actually the closest thing to kin that Arya Stark has available. As such, he has been given the uh, honor of giving away the bride, who, as we know, is actually Jane Poole. Uh, poor Jane is justifiably terrified and as broken as Theon almost, but assures Theon, with what this reader considers to be a fair amount of courage, that she will be a better wife to Ramsay than Arya could ever be. Theon pleads with her to remember that she is Arya, claiming rather unconvincingly that Ramsay is a sweet and kindly man who will treat her well if she plays her part. <coughs> uh, Theon, for his part, is resigned to his fate. He does not believe that Roos will do good by his word and restore him to his father's throne, and he fully expects to be returned to Ramsay once this is all over. He even refuses the pleading invitation, Jane's pleading invitation, to run away with her, even as it's sweetened, I put that in quotes, by the offer of her being his wife. 
His only hope is that Stannis will arrive soon and kill them all. What a beautiful hope, uh, especially as we move on to a wedding, eh? So let's get to the wedding. They proceed to the Godswood, where Ramsay and Arya are to be married before the heart tree in the tradition of the first men. George's descriptions of the scene are a testament to everything he is as a writer, uh, beautifully described, filling our minds with both the creepy and the beautiful, ravens, mists, and memories. Uh, as Theon presents Jane to Ramsay before the heart tree and all the gathered northern lords, he hopes against hope for but a moment that Ramsay will come clean, uh, excuse me, that Jane will come clean, announce who she is, and hopefully be killed quickly by Ramsay, which would be a tremendous mercy at this point. But yet again, he is disappointed. The ceremony is short. Jane plays her part. And after Ramsay carries Jane off, Theon alone thinks he hears his name whispered in the wind rustling through the godswood. Chalking it up to guilt, he makes a quick exit, brooding on the fact that Winterfell was destroyed because of him, and that is all he will be remembered for. So, what a glorious event this wedding is turning out to be. Uh, next in the festivities is the feast in Winterfell's hastily repaired Great Hall. Now, let me pause to point out that part of the reason they were able to so hastily repair was that when they arrived at Winterfell, they found a number of squatters living amongst the ruins, and Roos pressed them into service to help with the repairs, and then he hung them after the work was complete. Uh, Theon, seated at the end of the dais next to Lady Barbary Dustin, watches as delicious foods are brought out, even eating a bit too. He finds it difficult to eat, though, with so few teeth left. The highlight of the feast is Lord Wyman Manderley, he who is too fat to sit a horse, who brings forth three gigantic pies as big as wagon wheels, and he even serves up slices of the pie to the high lords in attendance, including the phrase, um, who we know from Davos's chapter that Wyman loathes. Uh, but of course, Wyman saves the largest portions for himself. Now, as Theon chats with Lady Barbary Dustin about her rather astute observations regarding Roos, saying that some men hunt, some hawk, but Roos's hobby is playing with men. Uh, she also speaks of her disdain for all things Stark, did you know that Brandon Stark was apparently her first and would have been her only had Rickard not ruined it with the Tully marriage plans? Uh, as they're speaking, three maesters enter with a message for Roos. After getting the message, he relays it to the entire hall, reporting that Stannis' forces have left Deepwood Mott. Uh, we'll remember that they retook Deepwood Mott during the last Asha chapter that we read, and now march on Winterfell to be joined by both Umber and Karstark forces. At that, Roos leaves the hall with the other northern lords to discuss strategy, and Theon is told to take Jane to Ramsay's chambers where he will be waiting. And Theon, of course, obeys. So we move to the chambers where Theon is alone with just rain excuse me, with just Jane and Ramsay. Ramsay orders Theon to cut off Jane's clothes with a knife. Uh, Theon, who briefly considers stabbing Ramsay, instead obeys, leaving Jane standing scared, cold, and naked. 
Ramsay mocks Theon, asking if, as Prince of Winterfell, he would exercise his right to take Jane first. Ramsay then begins to rape Jane, and when he finds her unaroused, he invites, uh, nay, forces Theon to join him and participate. And with that, the chapter ends. What a way yeah. to restart on that bleak note of a chapter. Holy cow, right? Yeah, nothing like a bleak rape three-way with Jamsy uh, <laughs> to uh, to get things started. Ugh, I mean, even when this guy's catching a break by not losing fingers and stuff, he's forced to participate in things like this. To say nothing of poor Jane, who... Right has we haven't talked about this at all really on this cast i don't think but the the clues are in here that that her her time since ned stark's capture has not gone well right and uh you know another chapter for her probably the bleakest one for her and man yeah bad news i didn't mention it in the summary but um Theon mentions as he's cutting her clothes off that he notices striped scars across her back, indicating that she had been whipped a number of times. Uh, and she that... mentions that she's been... Sorry, go ahead. Oh, yeah, you were going to say what I was going to say. Why don't you just segue <laughs> right into it? Go for it. Uh, well, and, and it's mentioned that she's she says she's been trained how to please mm -hmm. a man, which implies that she's been forced to learn how to please a man. Um, right you know, in, in some sort of sex house sorts. Yes, we we know that uh, she was given over to the custody after the killing of all the Stark forces in King's Landing. Jane, one of the few survivors, was given over to Peter Baelish. The oh. assumption being that he, you know, probably employed her in one of his brothels. In a, in a rather disgusting way, if I recall how that was done, it was kind of like she was mentioned offhand, and he's like, oh, don't worry, I'll take care of her. Yep. And they're like, okay, wash my moving hands right of that, along. don't need to worry. Yep, moving right along. Uh, a soul, or, you know, certainly a, a young girl's fate in the balance, and just move right along. And George is just merciless with her, right? Yeah. A feast, a feast for Crows in particular, I know this is a dance with dragons, but moving on after a storm of swords in particular, it's all about the consequences of this Game of Thrones that has been played throughout the first three books and that is still going on, right? We're going to see that very candidly in the Brienne chapter when we get to it, the horrors of war. Um, but here we see the effect on one person whose only transgression through this whole series was being in the wrong place at the wrong time, right? She was just happened to be in King's Landing. Other than that, Jane Poole has done nothing wrong, nothing to deserve what she's gotten. And well, I don't know about that. She chose to be friends with Sansa. Boom. <laughs> careful no, where you no. tread there, buddy. Just kidding, uh, guys. You guys know I love Sansa. Yep. And instead she uh Innocent little Jane Poole loses everything, and not only does she lose everything, but she loses it in the worst ways imaginable. It's just horrific. But yeah. Uh, um, but what do you think of of how she's handling this? I mean, 
my thoughts uh, are like, what else can she do? I mean, the not the, the, there are some stages of of <laughs> of trying to deal with deal with things. There's denial in there, and there's bargaining. You know, there's she's trying to convince Theon to help her. Um, you know, she's trying to deny at some point that that Ramsay will hurt her. Um, you know, I mean, I think she's going through all sorts of stages of trying to trying to cope with this. Um, you know, nothing works mm-hmm. when 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 you can't leave it behind. No coping mechanism works. It's coming for you. Right. Um, you know, it's not behind you, and so I, I you know, I think she she does she's shell shocked, and she does about as well as anyone could do. Sure. You know, short short of you know planning to fight back and murder him some way in some like mega clever you know i don't know maybe like something only stupid enough that Arya would try you know right. outside of that you know i think she does pretty well yeah but she really jane pool does just doesn't have the disposition for right She's, no if you do I, i'm not saying yeah. she should i'm not blaming her for that I, mm-hmm. i'm just uh, you asked how she's doing I, horribly but I don't know how anyone would do anything but horribly in this situation. Yeah, how can you not, right? Yeah. Uh, and how about Theon? <laughs> uh, well, you know, Theon's in a different place than she is. He's dealt with this for longer. He knows what the score is. Uh-huh. And he knows he knows that you just have to play along and um, that these are monsters. And playing along is the only way you survive monsters. Right. Yeah. At least of, of these kind. Um, but you know, you get, you get a sense that he's, um, a little bit more himself and wants to at least do something. He's moved to a point where it's not just thoughts of don't get flayed, don't get flayed, don't get flayed, don't get flayed. He has other thoughts about regret Mm -hmm. for his past, things that he's done. Uh, He has thoughts about things that he could do if he had a little bit more courage, um, but you know, I, I I don't know how careful I was reading those things. I don't feel like we got a lot of those thoughts in his earlier chapters as Reek. We didn't for um, sure. Uh, he was in kind of survival mode, I think. Yeah, uh, I think being so, back in Winterfell, walking through the ruins, and even seeing corpses that hadn't been removed, you know, brought a lot of that back for him. Yeah, it's both haunting and and uh, terrible for him, but also mm-hmm. maybe a little revitalizing. Yeah, it's weird. Yeah. That is weird how that can be. I thought it was interesting how Theon and Jane kind of are grasping for salvation in each other, right? Um, Both suffering consequences of the Game of Thrones and war. The one difference being that Theon was complicit in playing the game while Jane was fairly innocent all around. Um, But I found it interesting that you know, Theon is kind of looking, grasping, I should say, for salvation via Jane in him thinking, oh, just just say who you are, Jane, so hopefully Ramsay will just kill us, you know? And then, of course, yeah. Jane uh, looking looking to Theon to be kind of her savior. Um, and it's it's devastatingly sad, but also, I don't know if it's kind of comforting to know that they have each other at least to suffer with. Um, yeah. We'll see if it pays off. 
Yeah, George George does this sometimes. He's he did. A, I can't remember which character it was before. Um, but the, you know, they're they're just talking about. Oh, I think it was John. Actually, it wasn't about killing himself or, or dying himself, but uh, or actually, he thought he might die. But George does this thing where he, you get the inner monologue of the character, and it's like, ah, just it'd be better if I were dead. It would be better. I could just do this thing and then I'd be dead mm-hmm. and it really is better. And they like talk themselves into it and then they don't do anything. Um, <laughs> and I'm certainly not, I'm certainly not necessarily encouraging that sort of reckless streak or, you know, taking, taking your life or anything. But um, it's weird that George chooses to do that. I think it, maybe it just serves to um, show how rattled they are. Uh, maybe it serves to show, how unreliable their thinking can be. Sure. John does the same thing when he's talking about, um, uh, what was it? So, something with the Night's Watch. Oh, he's talking about, oh, I, I should just I should just murder Mance right now and the whole thing ends. Right. That's my job as, as, a, as a member of the Night's Watch. I should just do that and this whole thing ends. Mm-hmm. And yet he, he doesn't. Even though he, he tells himself it's the right thing and absolutely it would work and that's what he should do. And he doesn't do it. It's, uh, I don't know, it, it's something... Sometimes it angers me, and sometimes I'm like, yeah, George gets humanity. Sure. You can totally talk yourself into things and say, that's the right thing to do, and then not do it. And then you give yourself a second, right? Put the proverbial yeah. angry letter in the drawer for a night. and Yeah. <laughs> well, but I mean, in these cases, they don't even reconsider anything. No. Nope. They just don't do it, and then they kind of back up. Yeah. the moment passes. Mm-hmm. And... But they've still got those little glimmer of hope, right? Like, yeah. If you can call it that. I don't know. Yeah, perhaps. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Um side note, uh do you think talking about the uh Theon hearing his voice would be a Davos after dark topic considering we don't have any more brand chapters? Hearing his voice. How uh, Theon hears his voice in the gods or he, not hears his voice, I'm sorry. Here's his name called to him. Oh, I'm like, you think that's his own I'm voice? Uh, yeah, Fascinating. That's my bad. <laughs> when you said that, I'm like, yes, that absolutely <coughs> is Davos after dark material. Uh, wait a minute. We don't get another brand chapter? No, that's it. For the rest of the... Wow. I'm really out of touch with this book. Uh, you're not the only one. I, I, checked. I thought we had one too, but then I checked to make sure. Amazing. We're done. It makes sense that we don't. Um... Sorry, back to it. Uh, no, I uh, I think we can talk about it. Yeah, I mean, we already we already talked about what Bran saw through the weirwood and how it looked like sometimes people were responding to the trees and that that things could be heard. Um, I think we can talk about it here. Yeah, so you know, Theon hears his um, his name calling called to him when he's in the Godswood. We, you know, he passes it off as it just being the wind and a combination of the wind and guilt that he's hearing his name spoken by the dead. Uh, but we know that, and we don't have conclusive evidence of this, that it was this, but we do know that Bran has been seeing things through the heart tree. And uh, even it, it was with Eddard, right? Scad that he called yeah, out his father's name. While he was watching a, a scene of Eddard in the past in the Godswood, and it actually caused Eddard to look up and around, um, almost as if he heard him. So this may be a possible little clue from George that uh, Bran is watching what is happening there. Um, 
there's mentioned a couple of times about how the trees were full of ravens watching the the wedding or the affair and so again pointing to blood raven and uh their ability to warg into these ravens and and see things so interesting right yeah yeah i don't know what i don't know that it means anything sure I, like like i don't I mean, like i don't think they can well maybe they can it doesn't seem like they can tell theon what to do or you know do anything other than kind of whisper on the wind but um it does feel like after having read that brand chapter someone's watching someone's watching someone's taking note of this and yeah. someone knows the the whole story firsthand who's not there right in person right and maybe brand's next chapter that we get to read will be him pulling his hair out that's not my sister <laughs> that's exactly how right? it'll go yeah exactly and maybe this means nothing but another cool little clue that i maybe found was um that George specifically calls out that during the wedding, there was a crescent moon floating in the dark sky. And mm. uh, back to that branch. Remember sure. all those different moon things that they talked yeah, about? I, how could you fucking forget? Back and, and indeed. Yeah. When Bran was learning to see through, see into Winterfell, the description of the moon prior to that was a crescent moon. Huh? So uh -huh. maybe something, maybe not. Interesting. All right. What else do you like about this chapter? Uh, well, uh, let's talk a little bit about the the Lady Dustin stuff. Um, she she feels. I don't know why she feels reliable to me. Hmm. She she reliable. says all sorts of stuff that that well she says all sorts of stuff that is fairly inflammatory in this chapter. <laughs> but I kind of for some reason I believe her. I, it doesn't, uh -huh. for some reason, it doesn't feel like sour grapes to me. Um, and, but, but, you know, some of them are surprising. I mean, she believes Roos to, to really be in control of all these people that, you know, I, I feel like a lot of the events leading up to now are kind of like Roos doesn't, you know, like he's, he's not going to, he's not going to see this through, you know, like there's too many, too many enemies around. Got Stannis marching. The land is supposed to turn on him, you know. But like, the Lady Dustin who thinks are... he's the player, right? Yeah. Like he plays yeah, with the people men. who are pledging things. allegiance to him. Don't really like him that much, I right? Think. Well, yeah, for <laughs> sure. I mean, I don't, I don't know that we've seen evidence that they're plotting to do anything. But certainly, when the liege lord of an yeah. area that has been that liege lord for thousands of years suddenly is no longer there is a power struggle and so i mean history shows us that um especially when eddard stark and the starks in general were so well loved and so respected beloved. yeah right and so you know and you know the underlying kind of assumption that he had something to do with it uh -huh. right that that there might be some some underlying feelings there but but lady dustin is like don't don't try shit. He knows he's got this under control. It's on a wire for him. He knows what's going on. Yeah. We are but his playthings. Right. She says. Yeah. No, like, almost like there's no sense in resisting. Like, this is his plan, and don't fuck with it. Yeah. Uh, she also talks about the maesters, which is, um, I think this is an idea we've talked about in Davos After Dark before, but just with 
the maesters being a source of power and control. And the main reason I bring it up is it's a big diversion from one of the themes that we've talked about on this cast several times. The the Varus thing, I think it's a Tyrian thing. It's just, they've said a lot of things about power being where one perceives it to be. Sure. Uh-huh. Lady Dustin, as far as I remember in these books, is the only one that tells us that power lies with the maesters. No one perceives that to be the case. Isn't not that crazy? The, not, that we, not that we seem to get. But she lays out a compelling case for it. Yeah. And, um, and and it comes up in the very next chapter as well with The Watcher, something that I want to talk about. But um, I, I thought that was interesting, just this this take on the maesters as these manipulative, not innocent, uh, very much, uh, you know, having their own gambit to play mm-hmm. um, well, group. They come off as this very humble group of, of men who, you know, they give up their family names to be maesters yeah. and they're kind of back there uh, just kind of hanging out in the background of things. But yet families entrust the education of their children to these people. Families entrust yeah. their health to these guys. They entrust their yeah. communication with other houses to these people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it makes you go, yeah. wow, these maesters really do have something. Barbary really is onto something here. And why aren't more people thinking of this? But it's, well, it's and maybe quite insightful. Maybe, maybe I was a little too quick. I mean, Tyrion does fear his maester when he's recovering from his wounds on the Blackwater. Um, people suspect mm-hmm. uh, maester, maester Frail, uh, McFondle girls. What's his name? Pycelle. Oh, Pycelle. They 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 worry about Pycelle and poisoning and things. Um, so you know maybe maybe she's not alone, but I think I think she seems a step beyond everyone else yeah. in feeling like like them having a motivation for that influence, not just having influence, but something behind it. Yeah, their beef was with the the instances that you described were with particular maesters, and right. hers is with the order as a whole. Yeah, yeah. right. So yeah, a step beyond, like you've said. Right. Um, she also has uh, an opinion about Manderley, and uh, you know, I won't. Yeah. I won't, won't, you know, go to the wrestling mat to defend Manderley again, but um, she calls him Craven to the bone. Uh Theon, we get Theon's thoughts. I'm not, you know, he's not so sure. His sons are fat also, and they seemed capable and brave. Um, you know, but she, but 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 again, hers is the most compelling case for me to believe that he is. I, I trust her for some reason. I don't know why. Well, I wonder how well, you'd feel if you hadn't already, if we hadn't already read the North Remembers Davos chapter, right? Yeah, we know that he's planning something. That he's got something up his sleeve. Yeah, that's true. And so we can reasonably suspect that this is a bit of a facade by old Wyman. But yeah, but 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 you can say the same thing too about about uh Doran and you know scheming is not yep. doing. Yeah. Um now we'll get to maybe some things that he's done here uh, in Dolphins After Dark, but um uh-huh. yeah. Anyway, I she's she's an interesting character um and she 
she lays a lot of shit out for Theon that I don't really understand why she's doing it. I don't really get why she benefits from it. Um, which maybe that means I should be calling her her authenticity into question instead of trusting her. But that she's just rambling. Why? Yeah. She's why had did, a little bit why too this much guy that has? Yeah. Maybe. Maybe that's it. Maybe. Uh-huh. Well, but, uh huh. Well, if we get too much into it, we might be yeah. infringing upon the territory yeah. of the dark. Yeah. Perhaps. Yeah, from uh, this chapter, it does seem very odd that she's just opening up to this poor beaten creature who's just stuck yes. in a corner. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned the workers getting hung. Is this just Roos being Tywin, or, like, what is this? Were they a threat? I don't They were not a threat. Seem... I, they don't seem like they'd be a threat. Seems like let them do the work, and if they do it well, then let them go, or... Have them join. I don't. I don't know. I mean, well, Tywin was different. Tywin had that um, mentality that I can't remember. I think it was Tyrion who relayed it. Of if you know you you want to if you want to get an enemy on your side, you you treat him as your friend or something. I think he was referring to those that um, were on the Targaryen side of Robert's rebellion and who were pardoned. Yeah. Right. Uh, you know, these squatters don't pose any sort of threat like, say, a Barristan Selmy would pose. So, yeah, there's, there's I mean, nothing to do it. But I mean, they're likely just Northmen. Like, they're already on your side. Unless we think maybe they are, like, legitimate Stark supporters, and so he doesn't want them rabble-rousing well, they, or Yeah, they but... could have been, you know, leftovers from the battle outside yeah. of Winterfell. Survivors, we do know that there were survivors. Um, so... They could be that. Or they could just be people that were displaced from their homes because of whatever reason. I don't know. Right. But... It's just a weird why. Like why hang them? They just did you you know did some work. Put them to more work. There's more work to be done. Right. Like why? <laughs> it seems weird. Anyway. Yeah. Like like uh, Roos um, killing the the Ironborn men and putting them all up uh, along the yeah. road outside of Moat Kaelin. You know. The guys were sick and beaten down and done for. They weren't going to cause you any more trouble, but kill them anyway. Yeah, but that was that was sending a message. I don't know what message this is sending. Maybe to don't other try to survive folk. however you know. can. Yeah, <laughs> it's a, I don't know. Yep. Anyway, certainly not something that uh, you might see like the Starks doing or something. Yeah, uh, we kind of. I only really have one more thing. Uh, and it's short, and we kind of already did it, but just Ramsey is just grade-A villain material. Uh, uh, you know. You gotta I, have just a bad guy. He right? is. He's just disgusting. In all ways. And I, even just the way, like, in the wedding, uh, I think it's just part of the service where Theon asks who who claims her. But even just the way he answered that, me, I claim her, it just feel it's probably what he's supposed to say, but coming from him, it just feels just controlling and, and maniacal and filthy and smarmy and, yeah, I just, it's probably what they all say, <laughs> but reading it and thinking of him saying it was just awful. I understand. Uh, I'm yeah. rolling my brook eyes. You should. He's terrible. Yeah. He's absolutely terrible. Yeah. Um, what was the name? Have you watched 
Oh, I should ask you first. Have you watched season two of Stranger Things? Yeah, we're done with Stranger Things. Okay. So what was the Spoilers, name? Spoilers, everyone. <laughs> of the girl's stepbrother. I can't think of his name now. Do you know who I'm talking about? Which Steve's, girl's stepbrother? Steve's nemesis. The girl with the red hair. Oh. I'm totally uh, losing names now. Yeah, her but name you know is who Max. I'm talking about. His, yeah, I know, who he's, I know who you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. So um, they were talking to the, I was watching the Beyond Stranger Things special features type things that they do. And they were saying that the reason they included him in the series was just to have a bad guy. They felt like they needed to have like a concrete living human, just bad guy. Cause what's his name had played him. Um, gosh, I'm losing everyone's name. He's my favorite guy in the whole series. And now I can't think of his name, but the guy that babysat the kids. Oh, Steve. My gosh. Steve. Yes. Thank you. My heavens. Yeah. Steve Harrington, my favorite guy. Steve was yeah. kind of the villain for much of season one. And so they needed someone for season two. And we've always talked about how Gurm writes these incredibly complex characters. And you don't know. Sometimes they do. They're bad guys that do good things or good guys that do bad things. And this is Gurm's just bad guy. Just to have just a straight up villain. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And aside from yeah, I mean, Gregor Clegane, Joffrey really died, not... right? So, oh, Joffrey. There's another one. Yeah, I'd say Joffrey and Greg, old Greggy Clegg. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he's certainly filling filling the role admirably. Gosh, other other than the underlying theme of Theon reclaiming his name, I feel like Theon's arc in, especially in A Dance with Dragons, is about reclaiming Theon. Right. So far he wants to, but he, he can't, um, and kind of his, finding his place in the world. He talks about how he doesn't know if he's Stark or Greyjoy or whatever. He's just nothing. And in a, in a series that's so focused on family and your position in the world is determined by who you identify with and the family that you belong to. Theon's kind of that outcast, right? Yeah. His, his arc is more like, um, I was going to say a cardiograph, but that's not right. It's it's like one of the heartbeat monitors that you see all the time in like, mm. you know, TV shows where they're trying to get a heartbeat back. He's 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 nobody. And he just gets mm -hmm. these blips, these blips of life kind of <laughs> like bringing that. him back, mm -hmm. right? Uh and it's less an arc and more of a can these blips turn into something where it's consistent life living rather than right flatlining and you know um mm -hmm. yeah it, it, it's 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 a slow crawl from zero to anything slightly above zero to be a human again right to have mm -hmm. self-worth which um you know lots of people struggle with with that hitting hitting true rock bottom and trying to find something to make them feel worthwhile uh -huh. and, you know it's uh it's gut wrenching to read at times, um, and also, you know, sometimes inspiring. He doesn't, he doesn't give up and take the dagger and end up killing himself, you know, by attacking Ramsay. Um, you know, he there's still he that little back bit of and hope he tries to gain yeah. that spark. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, it's empowering and and beautiful in a way, but also hard to read. Yeah, 
crazy to think. I just, I, I did the math. We, we lost him. He, he went off the grid at the end of a clash of Kings, right? Mm. Which came out in 1998. A dance with dragons okay. didn't come out until 2011. Wow. So you had the 13 year gap between Theon. I, I don't know. That would be, that would have been cool to, to, you know, be like Brooke who was reading the books as they were kind of released, I think. And it's like, Oh, Oh, this is Theon Greyjoy. I remember him. Right. Well, it makes that re reveal that crazy, much more powerful, right? Uh, the amount of time between characters. It makes that reek reveal that much more powerful. Yeah. Yeah, and right. someone like me, I take it for granted who I read the books just one right. I had, I think we had like a, I had like a two month wait between when I finished a feast for crows and when a dance with dragons came out. So virtually nothing. I thought yeah. it was more like six months, but maybe not. Maybe it was. More, I remember I being eager. That's all I remember. Mm -hmm. <laughs> not yeah. nearly as eager as I am now. <laughs> all right shall we move on if we only knew what we were getting ourselves into yeah. uh yes let's move on right. to the watcher which will be summarized by the oh to there's no getting by you you're loyal brave he's strong you're true and as captain of the guards you keep that blade sharp they serve obey protect they said since you were six, yeah And it's you they won't forget As you stand beside your prince They say it's not the size of the chest that counts But in this case it definitely matters Because only a large chest could hold a large skull And the people of Dorne will riot in the streets If Balin Swan has brought them anything other Than the skull of Gregor Clegane The mountain that rode The killer of their beloved Red Viper, Oberyn Martell Hotas strokes the ashen staff of his axe and watches as Maester Kaliot removes the biggest skull Ario has ever seen from the chest. Then he watches as the room glares at it in hate and proceeds with mocking angry questions to Balon about the nature of the mountain's death. Doran himself is eager to proclaim the Lannister debt paid with this skull, but others seem less inclined to be so forgiving. Dorn is antsy, man, and several families don't seem too at ease now that the mountain is dead, refusing to raise their glasses in toast to King Tommen, and that includes the Sand Snakes. Sir Balin, for his part, is respectful, eating and drinking enough not to insult but not indulging. He also ignores Arianne's attempts at flirtation, something Eris could not do, <laughs> but he is tense as well, Hodusenses having been delayed by feasts and games in his honor all the way to Sunspear to arrive to a hostile city, strange in its ways, and worse, his brother and princess were not there to greet him. He is wise to be on guard. The queen has requested that Marcella return home for a short visit, according to Balon, and has encouraged Tristan to come as well. But Balon balks when Doran suggests that they return via ship. Just the sign Doran was looking for, this hesitation. Doran excuses himself from the feast, politely, taking his family and the ever-watchful Hota with him, and once in his private quarters, the Sand Snakes immediately start in again about the skull. Are they sure it's even Gregor's skull? Even if it is, that isn't enough. Though everyone involved in Elia's murder is now dead, it still isn't enough for the Sand Snakes. Tywin died at the hand of his own son. What more could you wish? 
well, basically they wish for the utter ruination of House Lannister. They want more blood. And the response to this is one of the better anti-war bits that we get in a series full of them, and I'm just going to read it. It's coming from Ilaria. Oberyn wanted vengeance for Elia. Now the three of you want vengeance for him. I have four daughters, I remind you. Your sisters. My Elia is fourteen, almost a woman. Obella is twelve, on the brink of maidenhood. They worship you as Dorea and Loreza worship them. If you should die, must El and Obella seek vengeance for you? Then Dorea and Laurier for, for them? Is that how it goes, round and round forever? I ask again, where does it end? I saw your father die. Here is his killer. Can I take a skull to bed with me? To give, him com to give me comfort in the night? Will it make me laugh, write me songs, care for me when I'm old and sick? That's Alaria, uh, Oberyn's uh, last and I proclaim best uh, lover. It falls on deaf ears, though, and Alaria leaves frustrated and sad, fearing for her daughters and their futures. Obara has made the point. War is coming, and Arianne's stunt, ending the life of a Kingsguard and mutilating a princess, did not help matters. But they've worked that all out, according to Arianne. Apparently, Myrcella has agreed to tell Swan that it was Darkstar who killed Eris and cut her up, in an action that was totally unsanctioned by Doran or anyone else at Sunspear. However, uh, Doran's deception doesn't end with his deception of Balon. Doran has been busy hatching plots, and each Sand Snake has a mission. He lets them in on the fact that he knows that Tristram was to be killed during a stage raid on the trip back to King's Landing. They will not go back. Myrcella will ask Swan to avenge Eris and go after Darkstar with Obara. Nymeria will take Doran's seat on the small council, and Tyene will pose as a Septa and try to get close to the High Septon. There to remain in place until... Um... Until he contacts them, I guess. The Sand Snakes are so eager to do something, anything, that they will ask literally zero questions about this plot with very few specifics. They leave, happy to be of use, and Doran confides in Arianne. He has heard word from Lys. Volantine ships with elephants. No dragons mentioned, but he believes Danny is coming, and perhaps Quentin with her. Then the chapter ends. So, Balon Swan, uh, he is no heiress. No, indeed. Uh, but headed for a similar fate, perhaps? Um, yeah, I mean, if you were Doran Martell and you got wind of that, yeah. You're not yeah. going to let that go down. Um, yeah, Balin, Balin plays this very close to the chest and um, you know does a pretty good job, but Ario is very perceptive and sees... Uh, that he's sweating this out a bit, mm -hmm. but uh, yeah, I don't. I don't know that it, it, it's kind of weird. All all of these times where you know these emissaries are sent to strange lands, like they have no power when they get there. Like you're sending them into a situation that they cannot control in any way. It's kind of a I don't know. And frankly, in this case. Balon Swan, for as good a knight he is, isn't equipped for this type of uh, no. mission, as no. it were. No. He's just a no. knight, and he's a great knight. Uh, I, I remember he, he acquitted himself. I think maybe the only instance of battle we've seen him in is on the Blackwater. 
if I remember yeah, correctly. He did well. Tyrion so, yeah. uh, ran across him during the Blackwater, and Balon was uh, kicking butt and taking names. Um, but he's a knight. He's not an emissary. He's not about all this side plotting and stuff like that. And so, yeah, yeah no wonder he's sweating. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't know what he's doing. Just more of Cersei putting the right people in the right places as she does so ably. Sarcasm. Yeah, right. Yes. Hashtag sarcasm. <laughs> uh, uh, well, uh, you know, the, the the best part of this chapter is is the bit that, that the to me, the anti war bit from Alaria and the and 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 the I guess maybe the bit right after that where Dorne is kind of outlining the, the plan. Um mm-hmm. but I I was reminded of Star Wars The Last Jedi. Hmm. Um one of the themes in that film is about saving what you love rather than destroying what, what you hate. And Alaria very much is in that vein, right? right. Uh-huh. Just hold close to what you love. Let's not we don't need more blood. We don't need more war. I don't care if you hate them. Let go, Luke. You know, like dwell in this. Dwell in the love you have for others. Save that. That's that needs to be the motivation here. Um and you know, I read them. Obviously I, I felt them to be beautiful, uh stirring words. What did you think? Absolutely loved it. I loved her voice in this chapter. Um and I really like her character. It seems that I don't know, when you when you get you don't learn a lot about her in A Storm of Swords, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Uh, I remember her being present, but I don't remember like a lot being said about her personality or her speaking up much. But I'd get the yeah. impression. It's almost that, like she's on mute. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Good way to put it. It's, it's weird. But with her being with someone like Oberyn, who has a lot of bastard children from other women and flies off the handle a lot and is just kind of Oberyn-y. Uh, you get the yeah. impression that Alaria is kind of either she's really meek and submissive to the strong personality that Oberyn is, or else she's very much in the same vein as he is. And so I was pleasantly surprised, and I thought it really cool to to see this soft, um, this soft side that's devoted to peace and to ending the bloodshed and the violence. I thought it was a, a really cool revelation about her personality so i agree with you yeah and you know uh doran indicates in this chapter to the sand snakes that he and oberon worked a lot closer together than they know and sure, i wonder if alaria yeah. was the the doran at oberon's side when doran couldn't be there she was you know the calming <laughs> influence the you know what i mean that'd be cool like to to keep him a little bit in check not that that's how it was designed necessarily but that you know uh, you get all sorts of psychological if you want to but that Oberyn sought that out when he was not around his brother to have something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, perhaps. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Mentioning that Oberyn was the viper, but Doran was the grass that hid the viper. Yes. Very cool. Yeah. A lovely metaphor. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, let's see. Yeah. There's just this whole, you know, we've got this, it's interesting because in the first three books have we've gotten the war in King's Landing in Westeros proper uh mm-hmm. in everywhere almost but Dorne 
and you know we've got the the veil which we've seen but their forces haven't been committed obviously they've managed to stay free from war um but you know everywhere else has just been ravaged by war and are now picking up the pieces and so the dorn this whole dorn plot is interesting because while everyone else is kind of getting tired of war and dealing with the after effects dorn is raring to get in on the fight right and so yeah. it's it's an interesting break from the rest of the books to to move down south and see how they're reacting and um we've talked about dorn before and we haven't been 100% complimentary to him but one thing i do really like about him in the same vein as alaria is him recognizing the importance of every soul that he has kind of stewardship over not just the lords not just his own family but everything as symbolized of course by the water gardens right and how right. any child is free to play and be amongst each other in the water gardens from doran's own children to the washerwoman's kid they're all free to play and he talks about uh naked they were only children Reminds me of the Dave Matthews line. I might have brought it up here where he says, Naked, we will see that we are all the same. And I love his line of, It's an easy thing for a prince to call the spears, but in the end, the children pay the price. And so, as hard as we've been in, on Doran, I love that. Uh, that his carefulness, which we sometimes view as a con of his personality, is well-intentioned for protecting everybody. So I love that about yeah. him. Yeah. Yeah. And I left the uh, the Water Gardens uh, story out, um, intending to talk about it here, and I'm mm. glad you brought it up. Here we go. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's very much a... Um, it is it is perhaps Doran's mind kampf. It's it, it's his it, it, it's this is his philosophy. Mm -hmm. This is perhaps the story from his parents that he remembers the most and models his entire rule after. Mm -hmm. Everyone matters. The Dornish as a people matter. Everyone matters to a child, and you can see that if if you believe that 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 this is his kind of his directive, you can see that in his decision-making and his care. Now, the, you know, there are a million examples in nature and sports and anything else you can think of. Too much care has the opposite effect. Right. <laughs> you know, yep. at some at point, some calling point. the spears mm -hmm. saves the children. Um, mm -hmm. And, and there, you know, there's the trick, right? <laughs> where, where, where is that line? Uh, where you're now saving children instead of harming them. I don't know. Yeah. Hard to say. It definitely explains why he keeps going to the water gardens. I mean, sure, it's for the relaxation and escaping the heat and all of that stuff that Ariane thinks he's doing it for. But I think that's also, you know, he faces immense pressure from a lot of people to be going to battle. And that's probably a big reason why he still makes those trips and spends so much time at the water gardens is to remind himself of, you know, when the pressure's really on and he's feeling like he needs to act. This is his way of like getting away from the situation, reminding himself yeah. of his purpose and goal and yeah. 
keeping an even keel, but I totally agree with you. What we've talked about in the past is that at some point, you know, are you protecting the children by, yeah, by calling the spears, like you said. Yeah. No, no, I will say this. Um, just historically, I think that line of where to call the spears is different for Dorne, not Doran, but Dorne, than it is for most places. We've seen in the history book that it has had a lot of success waiting for people to come to them, oh, yeah. hiding, mm-hmm. getting out of Dodge when people come and, you know, repopulating afterward, hiding in the desert uh, where no one can come get them. Um, they have other options than just going to war. Yep. And so I think that moves the line a little bit further toward toward patience. Mm-hmm. And I think Doran has that sense of history and knows it. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I, I don't, I, 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 when I attack Doran, it's, it's mostly about, is your planning thorough and are you trusting enough and the right people? Not, not you're being too careful necessarily. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. His, but our, our major criticisms has been his, is his uh, treatment with his kids and stuff like that. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Much like, um, your points well taken, much like the North with Moat Kaylin and, and the, the neck that they have as kind of a natural defense and even a weapon to some degree. Dorn, yep. you know, has a similar, uh, similar weapon in their nature being the, the deserts and inhospitability of Dorn yeah. in general. So, yeah. Yeah, it's not Definitely just a phrase. Animal. They are unbroken, you know, like they've never been conquered. Sure. Right. So um yeah, they've got they got some different options. Mm-hmm. Um so so we talked about the trust thing. So should, do you think should Doran be trusting the Sand Snakes more? We we said that before with Ariane, like, look, you gotta share more with her mm-hmm. than this because she's taking the wrong thing, her brain is making up stuff because you're right. not filling in the gaps. Yeah, you know, I think does he need to tell them more? The risk, I, I think he's outlined the mission well enough. I think the risk is the same one with Oberyn. And what he's sending the Sand Snakes in to do is, at this point, unless I'm missing something, is simply to observe, correct? I guess. He didn't tell them to do anything, yeah. so uh, yeah, Build I mean, I guess relationship, so. Maybe, you know, get close to the High Septon is what he told Tyene. Um so to observe and maybe build, you know, alliances where you could. He mentioned that he has friends in court. Um, yeah. So, you know, maybe cultivating but, those but, types of things. But this... but in the absence of in the absence of clear direction, you're gonna rely on your instincts and your own your own personality, your own ways of behaving. Right. Tyene isn't gonna get close to the high septon. She's going to get close to the High Septon and poison him that's unless what, you tell her not to. Yeah, that's, right? that's like, exactly what I'm getting at is that oh, sorry. if you're like Oberyn, no, no need to apologize, but these are Oberyn's kids and they've been chomping at the bit to get in on some action. We've read that in Doran's chapters already. They're all just like, let us go to war and they all have their different ideas for doing it. And yep. now you're sending two of them into the belly of the beast and do you really expect them to just sit and be quiet and take notes? I yeah. don't know if 
if your trust Nymeria in particular yeah. Nim in particular seems like a back alley murder waiting to happen uh-huh. where she's the murderer I mean like she just wants blood and she's dangerous and uh, yeah it is good that he's including them in something because if he didn't do yeah. something with them they were going to do something very rash and it might have ended in his own death frankly yeah it might have so it's good that he did something with them i just like the same thing we've talked about with Arianne and quentin i don't know if they're the right people for the job or the job's not right for them or something yeah he's got he's got bad pieces is what you're saying or or pieces that are fit for a different game. Pieces that are fit or, for a different game, yeah. Puzzle pieces that aren't fitting together or something. I don't know. Yeah. Before we'd use, but yeah, we're on the same page here. <laughs> yeah. I just, uh, he's, I don't know. It just, it really, I'm sure you picked it up in the summary the way I read it. it I'll contact you if certain things come to pass. Well, like, what if they don't, man? Like, yeah. then what? How are you going to contact? Like, yeah, do we just like, stay there? Yeah, like, I mean, I guess he'll contact them if things don't come to pass too, maybe, but it just seems... If if I were one of the Sand Snakes, I'd have been like, um, Jedi Master, if what comes to pass? You know, like, <laughs> I, right? Yep. I would want to be more clued in than that. Mm-hmm. But I mean, maybe that goes back to the the, the the oath they swore, and so they're saying, "Okay, we have to trust him." But I don't know. Yeah. <sighs> Dorne is an angry and divided land. Ario observes. It is. I, yeah. I think they're definitely angry. I'm not sure on the divided part. Yeah. Well, uh, I think I think they are. I think it's shown by the observation of the wine drinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, that there are several families that don't partake that don't partake in the wine drinking, um, that that seem angry, yeah. um, and they don't seem to accept. So Doran is very. I, I can't decide whether it was very clever or very incendiary to invite all of these people to come. He could have done this ceremony with the head, with just he and Balin, and then just announced or something. He wanted everyone of importance there to see it oh yeah for themselves mm-hmm. and then be able to proclaim eagerly and quickly the debt is paid and I, I i think i get what he's trying to do yep. you know he's trying to quell this quell this yeah. division that mm-hmm. that some people are perceiving but it might have just made it worse i mean a he invited everyone to a location where they can get together and plot and scheme together while they're together <laughs> which you know that's never helpful for you know killing plots um you know and b it just kind of the whole mood of the thing just felt like you get a bunch of angry people together and even if they get what they want you know maybe they just there's just too much anger and it just overflows mm-hmm. and i don't know I, I don't know if it accomplished what he wanted it to accomplish yeah, maybe. Um, a note on the, the those that did not drink. I was looking them up, and almost all of the people that did not drink were people that had accompanied Doran to King's Landing. I don't know if that's significant in any way, but uh, 
people they that probably... had accompanied Doran to King's I'm Landing. I'm sorry. I'm having so much trouble with names. Oberon, Oberon. to King's Landing. Ah. I'm sorry. Yeah. That were kind of in his company when he was there. So Daemon Sand, uh, Tremond Gargolin, Dagos Manwoody. Great last name. There was a Hellholt in there, wasn't there? Olers. The Olers are uh, Ilaria's family. She's an Oler, so that makes sense. That... Oh, the Olers, I think, are of Hellholt. Yes, they live. the Olers of Hellholt. Yeah. Yep. Oh, my God. <clears throat> the Fowler twins were not there, but we know that they're good buddies with the Sand Snakes, so that makes sense. That might mean something. I feel like... I feel like when, when Pod was reading all those flags off, he read, like, almost all of them. Yeah, there's a ton, right? So, uh, well, I don't know. But maybe. maybe that. So you're, what you're implying is only the people that knew Oberyn really well are angry. Yeah, it's more personal for them. Maybe they saw yeah. his death. They were there yeah. at the event or something. I don't know. Right. I don't yeah. know. Just thought it was interesting. Yeah. It's a good point. <clears throat> there's, there were a lot more witnesses there. Than you know, just Alaria. Yeah. Okay, uh, that's about all I got. You have anything else for this chapter? No, let's let's move along. All right, uh, we got Brienne now, which is also you. It is. If you could see what we could see, oh, I swear you would believe conviction, grace, and pride. Swear the beauty resides. You don't have to hide behind the lines Oh, your fate, they can't decide Well, Brienne, you'll always be A beauty to me Brienne and her companions, Podrick, Sir Heil Hunt, Maribald, and the ever-bounding dog make their way from salt pans to the Inn at the Crossroads. Cue music. But their journey isn't a lonely one. They are greeted ceremoniously, mile by mile, by hung and butchered broken men from various armies. These are the raiders of the salt pans, and they have been executed by somebody. Noose perhaps suggests Beric Dondarrion's crew. Uh, anyway, practically wading through the bodies, they finally arrive at everybody's favorite inn. The reception isn't exactly rosy here, but it's way better than what they got at salt pans. When they had arrived from the ferry at Saltpans, they found a city covered in ash, devoid of human life. Only the squat keep, protected by its curtain wall, was unspoiled. Rapping at the gates only netted a woman, telling them to shove off and make for the crossroads in if they needed a place to stay. Yikes. Hospitality. Anyway, uh, the inn seems to be run by kids. Four girls under ten show up. A young boy uh, as well, kind of around their knees. And an absolute Adonis sexily sweating over a forge, the vision of which shakes Brienne to dust. My lord. Lord? I'm just a smith. It's my boy Gendry, of course. And though Brienne can see the differences as she looks closer, she sees Gendry for the Baratheon he is immediately. They ask to stay, uh, for room, a meal, anything. Gendry and the tallest girl, Willow, fight it out, but agree eventually that they can stay. Brienne isn't planning to stay long, though. In a conversation with Pod, she indicates that she plans to sneak out the next morning, uh, she and Pod, before Hyle and the Septon can rise. But where to go? We find Brienne in a similar position to Cat way back in A Game of Thrones. Roads lead in all directions from this inn, hence the name Crossroads, and she could take any of them. 
and all options have their positives. Sansa's aunt used to be in the Vale, and they might find friends there. Her uncle, supposedly, uh, great uncle rather, supposedly West at the Twins. Uh, and then there is Winterfell. Maybe Sansa went home. Uh, and then lastly, there's South. The only path she can't fathom taking, but one that parts of her want very badly to take. <coughs> Jamie. <coughs> Doesn't matter, though. Because just like Cat three books back, the decision-making process is completely weighed to waste by surprise visitors. But I'm getting ahead of myself. A cacophonous dinner and a heartless but not insane marriage proposal from Sir Hyle Hunt are all the excuse Brienne needs to go trudging off to the forge with some food for Gendry. She finds him, safe from the rain, beating some steel into submission at the forge. She wastes no time asking about his parentage, asking if he is from King's Landing, if he's ever seen King Robert. She's about to tell him what she thinks when the ghost of Cat's distraction becomes her own. Unexpected people have arrived at the inn at the crossroads. Rorge, wearing the hound's helm, Biter, and five others, and Brienne knows immediately it is too many. Still, she persisted. Knowing she only has a chance if she can keep things one-on-one, -on -one, she baits Rorge into attacking her immediately. Something about not having a wiener? Uh, she defends and counters and parries, trying to wear the big man with the axe down, and she takes her chance as Rorge comes rushing forward. She plunges her sword deep into his guts. Sapphires, she whispers. I squeal. Her reward, though, for vanquishing Rorge, is Biter, who has wasted zero time in attacking, slamming her to the ground, pinning her in the mud, crushing her as he slams her head against the rocky ground over and over again. Brienne punches his face, tries to knee him in the groin, even slits his belly open with her dagger, but it seems not to do but embolden him. Her strength gone, her fight extinguished, Biter takes two bites from her cheeks, rises up and taunts her laughing, his tongue sticking out grotesquely long. Or is it his tongue? Is it something else? It looks like a sword. And that's all we get before Brienne passes out. That whole scene, Scad, is the stuff of nightmares. Yeah. Isn't it just horrifying? It is. Yeah, it's, it's uh, Enter Sandman come to life. Yeah, it's, it's bad. I think that's got to be, I'm trying to remember back to the first time I read, but even still reading that chapter and knowing it's coming and everything, I still am just absolutely terrified as I'm reading that, that passage. It just gets me. Ooh, so creepy. Yeah. Do, do you mean specifically the very end stuff where she's pinned down and has no control and power and the, just is losing it? The lighter it? stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And just yeah. talking about how she's punching him in the face and it just feels like dough and it's just ugh. He, biter just is this creature who's not human uh and taking bites out of her face you know yeah it's just oh it's a nightmare yeah bites out of her face she's clawing at his wrist drawing blood it's doing nothing right she even cuts his belly open i mean we don't know how deep it went but she cuts his belly open and he's just like, nah, I'm going to bite your face instead Nothing. of giving up. Yeah. It's. I mean, ooh. it's pretty intense. Yeah. yeah. It is. Yeah. I mean, a very, a very cool fight scene. Um, you know, I can just, I can kind of just picture this scene in the forge. Rain pouring through cracks. Gendry sweat. Heat hissing steel. Just sexy. And then 
One arm bigger than the other. Yeah, and then just pouring rain and mud as these men, these beasts just dismount. Uh-huh. You can just pi- I can just picture the Cloaked. whole thing so clearly. It's yeah. so it's 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 so well laid out. Uh-huh. I love it. It's a great scene. It is a great scene. No chance and no choice. Love it. Oh, yeah. Brienne, you're a hero. She if, is indeed. If yeah. Ramsay is everything that's terrible, Brienne's kind of everything that's good. Yeah, and I, I did your episode uh, name a disservice by not including the specifics in my chapter summary. Rorge has already threatened to rape the 10-year-old girl. Yep. Um, and, and so, you know, no chance refers to the number of men and no choice because what are they going to do to these poor people? Right. Um, things Brian could probably hardly imagine. And, uh, yeah, she has, she has to intercede. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that she does, you know, is yeah. remarkable. Very cool. Yeah. I'm a little disappointed in Heil and uh, Gendry and, um, you know, come on, join in. Yeah. Right? Well, she says she she kind of thinks that he joined the fight, right? Referring we to think, Heil. I, well, yes. He hears, yeah, he hears, she hears some noises. Swords she going on and yeah. she's like, oh, Heil's joined the fight. But, right. Yeah. Well, and we get that, that last image of perhaps a sword sticking through the back of Spider's throat, maybe. Mm -hmm. That's what it seems like maybe they're trying to tell us. So perhaps Gendry and that new sword he was just working on that is red from the heat, being like a tongue, maybe. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, there you go. Man, Brienne is just beat to bits. If she's not dead, I mean, she's going to want to be, right? We had... Yeah, I they mentioned I mean she mentioned she felt her ribs breaking at some point. Yep. Uh her, her head's got to be a ruin from that rock. She's got to have a concussion. Um yep. her arm she was says somewhere broken. In there that her arm was broken. Yeah. She felt her right. arm break and then let's say it again, pieces of her face were yeah. eaten off, which is so tragic yeah. for someone who already has this struggle with physical appearance right it's complex that's yeah it's reminiscent of Tyrion, right losing his nose yeah now you've got brienne to the beauty uh who's going to have facial facial disfiguration for the rest of her life if she's lived through this yeah yeah i mean uh she's gonna be a wreck i mean if if, if she lives through it i mean just even the broken arm like that's got to be a big deal out here, no? When you don't have any sort of ability to set it or, mm-hmm. you know, like, I don't know, can a broken arm kill you? If I, I doubt it, but, like, it's not going to be good. Yep. Nope, you're absolutely right. Uh, you know. It's... But Anyway. Anyways, of course, the big theme of this chapter is dealing with the consequences of war. Yes. Right. Yeah, these poor kids. I'm sure you've got something to say on it. Go ahead. Uh, not much, other than these poor kids. That yeah, you know, this is it's it's cool to read this chapter right after the Watcher with Doran and Alaria's pleas for peace, right? Because the children will suffer. Mm-hmm. Well, now we get to see how the children are suffering, right? These hungry kids. How do you mean they get a great meal in this chapter? They did, right? (laughs) (laughs) 
I'm, they're running a business. Who gets to do that at 10? I mean, kudos to them for being able to survive, but uh, you could tell they were hungry. They were very yeah. hungry. They're holding on by a thread there. Uh, man. Yeah. Um, yeah, they're not in a good place. I mean, what it's it's a little bit haunting the way Willow describes it. Um, I can't, I, sh- I should find the quote, but it's something like, uh, you know, the sparrows bring some and some just find their way here or mm-hmm. something. Right. As if it's, as if, well, think about it like percentages. If five of them found the place, how many are wandering around and looking and not finding it? Yep. yep. You know, are just dying out there, untaken care of, or huddling in their room at home because it's a safe place in their mind, but their parents are gone and starving to death or, you know, because they're too afraid to leave or, I mean, so many of the people that, you know, the story, the story isn't the people that made it to the kids that made it to the end. It's the kids that didn't. And, you know, uh, Brienne says it's, it is being common born that is dangerous when the great Lords play their game of Thrones. Actually, I think that was someone else. I thought else, that was Maribald uh, that said it that. Was, yeah, it was Septon Maribald. Excuse me. But, oh, that's okay. Yeah, how true. I, I wrote that down as well. Um, you know, Sir Hyle is, is talking about <laughs> it's uh, it's dangerous to own an inn because Maribald gives the history of this inn that's changed hands and changed names so many times. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, he says it's dangerous to be a, an innkeep and you know, no, it's it's just being common born that's dangerous, and yeah, I mean, if 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 we've talked about narrative purpose before, and just you know, what is George trying to say, and it's it's lines like that that make me think maybe there's not going to be anybody on the Iron Throne at the end of this thing. Yeah, maybe there you shouldn't know? be. And maybe there, yeah, maybe there shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. All it is is a okay. symbol of blood and death and war. Speaking yeah. of Heil, Heil Casanova? Yeah, Heil Casanova. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I, I shoved it in there very quickly in the summary. He proposes marriage today to Brienne in, in this chapter. For very logical uh, reasons yeah, he... that are based on odds and percentages of whether or not he'll get to inherit uh, the sapphires mm-hmm. Evenfall. Um, mm-hmm. of even fall and or Tarth. You yeah. know, I'm a logical guy, but logic doesn't belong everywhere, right? <laughs> Certainly not always in a marriage proposal. <laughs> when the yeah. logic is, I'm only marrying you to get your your dad's uh, to become heir to what your dad has, and you know it'll be okay. I don't really want to make babies with you, but it'll be okay when I turn off the lights. You know, it yeah. won't be that big a deal. And he totally says that he'll kiss her and stuff as long as she turns the lights yeah. out. And I'll give you a whole bunch of kids because you're a woman. So obviously, all that you want to do is just be a mom. And uh, yeah, it'll it'll be great. It's like he's banking on Brienne having such low self-esteem to the extent that he doesn't even bother covering up the motive. 
he's banking on her just being so desperate that she'll be like, yeah, okay, let's do this. But Brienne's not like that though. She does. It, have, it's it's. Go ahead. Right. She does. She does have some issues with herself, but she's kind of beyond those things. And frankly, a big reason for that is because of here we go, Jamie and Brienne Shippers. But it's because of her experiences with Jamie. Yeah, perhaps we've talked about that before. About you know, is she is she a self loather or is she comfortable with who she is? And mm-hmm. I think we we all disagreed with each other for a while. I think that was even back when, when, when Brooke was with us and um, maybe, maybe not. I think though where we landed was a little bit of both. She has self-worth and she knows that she has it and it's not dependent on her looks, mm-hmm. but also, but also she's, you know, she's still insecure about that in general. And it's yep. a sore point. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's a little stunning that somebody could be that Sir Hyle specifically could be around Brienne for as long as he has been because it's been months now, right? I think, or or at least weeks. I'd probably say maybe a month or so. Yeah, mm-hmm. but spending basically all day every day with her, yep. and seeing how she operates, you know, and and the fact that he did know her from from Renly's camp before, probably not really mm-hmm. well, but you know, had some experience with her. It's amazing that somebody that's had that much exposure could misread her that badly. Right? The, totally. Relating to the, the self-esteem thing that you mentioned. I mean, that is, that's just not who Brienne is at all. And even if it was, it wouldn't be with you. Yep. Right? Like, <laughs> like you're not the only one that can do math. There are other people that would be interested in Evenfall, perhaps. And they'd be a step up from you, dude. Yep. I mean, he's... Big time. I like him. I like him in a way, not as a fit for Brienne. He's funny, and I, you know, I kind of like his he's swagger He's kind of just a scoundrel, yeah. Yeah, a little bit, yeah. Uh, you know, he's got some good jokes in here. The crossbow in, the gallows in. He's kind of kind of named the inn because, you know, Septon Maribald says there is no names. So he's trying his hand at naming the place the whole chapter. It's kind of funny. Um... But he's not a catch, <laughs> you know? Nope. And you would know because you are a catch. Well, thanks, Matt. You're welcome. I think Brand should know because she's a catch. Indeed. Uh, let's see. I don't know that I got a whole lot more for this chapter. I got one more thing okay. about Gendry. Uh-huh. Like... It's almost like a bad Shakespearean, bad Shakespearean comedy. Let's just say a Shakespearean comedy, uh, with the level of care people are going to to not tell him who he is. <laughs> just blurt it out, man! Like all these leading questions. Have you been to King's Landing? Hmm. Have you ever seen the king before? No mother. Interesting. No mother around anymore to tell you. Like, just tell him what you think. Like, let's not draw this out. He's just like, will you just let me pound my sword? Yeah. Yeah, you heard me. I'm busy here. Yeah, I'm banging on my sword. <laughs> <sighs> yep, anyway. enough of this. Yeah. Get to it. Uh, I think I think that's about all I got. Uh, great battle. Um, you know, we didn't talk about the broken men at all. I don't know if there's much, too much to be said. 
they've been murdered somewhat justly for their atrocities at salt pans. I like the, uh, I liked another line I liked in there swollen in death with faces, nod and rotten. They all looked the same. Uh, she says these were evil men yet the sight still made her sad. Yeah. In the end it is sad. Yeah. No one wins in the end. It appears. Right. And they've all got children at home. Yep. Those are the ones that are really Probably. affected. Right. Mm-hmm. All right. Should we jump over to uh, Brienne's not quite better half, maybe, depending on who you ask? Uh, it's by far the Ooh. worst, like, tenth. He's not half. <laughs> She's like 90 and he's 10. <laughs> I'd agree with you. We love Brienne. All right. Here we go with Jamie. Would you know that he's deadly in a fight and a smile so wide to get cheating at the palm of his hand? Jamie Lannister got a thing for sister, gonna keep it quiet, so we'll push a kid out of window. And when that king's lying, dead, it doesn't matter, reason, bottom line is sister treason. And deep inside, could there be something only if you could see a hero? Could that be? Said Jamie, said Jamie, said Jamie Lannister, say it again, said Jamie, said Jamie. Said Jamie Lannister. So the chapter opens with Jamie parlaying with Sir Brendan Tolley just outside the walls of River Run. And spoiler alert, it does not go well. Uh, addressing Jamie as Kingslayer, the Blackfish immediately sets into Jamie regarding his failed oath to Catelyn, namely to bring her daughters home in exchange for his freedom. So if he doesn't have the girls, Brendan suggests, shouldn't Jamie resume his captivity at Riverrun? Uh, Jamie swallows any excuses he might make and attempts to soldier on in the face of Brendan's blistering barrage. He cuts immediately to negotiations, saying that he will return Edmure Tolley, the heir of Riverrun and Brendan's nephew, in exchange for Lady Westerling and her three children. Now, you'll remember that one of those children is Rob Stark's widow, and uh, the Westerlings themselves are vassals of Casterly Rock. Now, this sounds like a pretty decent exchange on the surface, but Brendan, perhaps unsurprisingly, refuses, saying he swore an oath to Rob Stark that he would keep Rob's bride safe. Um, despite Jamie's insistence that Jane Westerling has been pardoned and will go free, swearing on his honor, the Blackfish, of course, spits on the honor of Jamie Lannister, he who had killed King Ares, and he once again rebuffs him. So Jamie decides to approach a peaceful settlement via a different method, saying that if Tully will strike his banners and open the gates, surrendering their weapons, not a soul will be harmed. Uh, Tully himself will be even be permitted to join the Night's Watch. But Brendan refuses, saying he prefers to die with a sword in hand, running red with lion blood. Jamie reminds him this defiance serves no purpose. The war is done and your young wolf is dead. But Brendan belligerently persists. Now, after a couple more pages of verbal sparring, he admits there he admits there are no terms Jamie could give that he would agree to. And more so, a win for Brendan, he's riled Jamie up. Remember, this is something Jamie likes to do. He likes to needle at his opponents here, here and there. And Brendan's doing the same thing to him. Uh, calling him both a coward and a cripple. 
Um, as Jamie and Brendan go their separate ways, the parlay at an end, uh, Jamie vows to himself that he will be the first one over River Run's battlements when they attack, uh, telling himself that one more broken vow means nothing to the Kingslayer. Of course, this referring to his vow to not take up arms against House Tully again. So now his blood's a-boiling, and Jamie calls a war council consisting of fellow lords from the Westerlands, as well as river lords who were enemies but have now sworn fealty to the throne, uh, including, of course, the Freys. Ryman Frey, who has so deftly bungled the siege at River Run thus far, doesn't even show up to the council, sending his son Edwin in his stead. Uh, the war council goes about as well as the parley, with some calling for Edmure to be hanged, others calling for an outright storming of River Run, some for a sneak attack. Uh, Freys and Pipers nearly come to blows as the former enemies recall the Red Wedding. Uh, Jamie quells all of this and then abruptly just dismisses the council, having decided nothing, saying only that they attack at first light. Jamie then crosses over to the Frey camp to see for himself just how poorly the siege is being managed. There he finds the aforementioned Sir Ryman Frey, he who has been put in charge of the siege in his tent with a singer and a whore. Jamie discusses with Ryman how stupid he looks, threatening every day to hang Lord Edmure but never actually doing it. You know, it's to the point that everyone knows he never will. Only a fool makes threats he's not prepared to carry out, Jamie says. Jamie then dismisses Ry Ryman as in, go home, you're done here, and he gives the command to Edwin Frey, Ryman, again, Ryman's son. After that, they actually cut down Edmure from the gallows where he'd been paraded out uh, and had been hanging out day after day. And they take him back to the Lannister camp, along with the singer who had been playing in Ryman's tent. Uh, Jamie orders food and a bath for the suspicious Edmure. Uh, Edmure claims that he and his bride, Rosalind Frey, love each other, and that she wanted no part in the Red Wedding, and also that she is pregnant with his child. So now seeing that Edmure has some skin in the game... Jamie begins to negotiate terms with him uh, after things with the Blackfish went so badly. Edmure is the rightful lord of Riverrun, Jamie reminds him, telling him that he will be taken to Riverrun in the morning to command Brendan to yield the castle. If Brendan yields, all the small folk may go in peace or stay to serve the new lord, Emonfrey. Brendan and other members of the garrison can take the black. Uh, Edmure, along with his wife and child, will be allowed to live as a family and as hostages at Casterly Rock, along with all of the uh, perks and benefits of uh, being a highborn hostage. Actually, there's some pretty decent things that Jamie promises. Um, but Edmure asks what will happen if he doesn't yield. And... Jamie darkly declares that if he does not yield, that he will then take the castle, destroy it along with every living thing in it, and then send Edmure's newborn child to him in a trebuchet. Jamie then leaves Edmure with his thoughts and his food, 
instructing the singer to play for Edmure while he eats. Uh, Edmure seemed to notice the man for the first time and pleads, no, no, not him. Get him away from me. And that's where the chapter ends. Uh, a trebuchet. That's just like a fancy carriage, right? Uh, yeah, it's it's the name of a stroller brand in Westeros. <laughs> oh, Jamie's uh, that that bit by Jamie the the uh, offering of the term should he decline is is classic Jamie, right? Uh, really good stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's yeah. he he he's you know he offers that if it's a if it's a male son that the, the, he can become a squire and maybe become a knight and and all that stuff one day if it's a girl they'll the lannisters will provide a dowry for her when she marries like yeah there's some legit stuff but if you don't we're going to kill everybody including your baby if you don't i will take up arms against the sea of tullys and by opposing in them yeah i mean it, it's it's uh no mercy i mean we're talking about uh rain rain and tarbeck level extinctions yeah. right yeah and uh, you can see what jamie's trying to do here he desperately wants this thing to be over he's just he mentioned it to davin right in in the last jamie chapter that we read or Gemma, he one of them during the conversation that his plan is to just offer the tollies terms they cannot refuse Jamie wants this done yep. with over. Yeah. And uh we see that here. He's nothing if yeah, not it's, trying and, to and just he, be efficient. And he's clever, you know. I mean, he tries once with the blackfish mm-hmm. and it doesn't work. He bounces his some ideas off of his idiot council uh <laughs> and then and then comes up with another option and it's very clever. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Get some get somebody who has something to lose because the blackfish will be dead soon anyway, and no family wants yeah. this glorious death, mm-hmm. right? Um, and and from his perspective, probably thinks he's right that Edmure is a dead man walking anyway, and so you know what does he have to lose other than people that he thinks would rather give their lives anyway? Now those people might disagree with him if they if he asked them, but um, you know, clever from Jamie and uh. You know, they're, they are tempting terms. You know, do you want to have family live through this? You know, or do you want to have a legacy of being a stone-cold badass that wouldn't give in and right. took a few down with you when you went? Yeah. What do you want? What's important to you? The problem with to It's the, a hard choice, man, but... Yeah. I mean, the problem with to the death is that it's not just your own death. It's if Jamie fulfills his promises, it's a wholesale massacre. And yeah. when your when your job as a liege lord is to protect your people, you know, yeah. it kind of almost dictates that you should surrender and yield. Yeah. And and if you if you know Edmure, and we do, uh we already saw him do this once. Sure. Uh his people came to him begging for help mm-hmm. and he brought them all. Yeah, all of them into the castle Come on in. to like keep them safe and feed them and stuff because they were scared. You know what he's going to do here, yep. right? Uh-huh. I I don't think we're meant to be in suspense here. Edmure is the kind of guy that's going to take these terms. Yep. And I think we've seen it. I think George builds characters that way so that we can come to those conclusions. Uh, yeah, right. And it's it's awesome. Yeah, I mean, I don't think he needed the song. 
at the end, you know? You that know, was just Jamie being a dick. Jamie, but, for but, all his redemption and everything, he still just has to do these little things. Like, Yeah. 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 He's an a-hole. <laughs> but, you know, yeah, he's he's doing he's doing better things. He is, yeah. But uh, deep down, he's an a-hole. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you disagree. Well, it's fine. kind of. I feel like even deeper down, Jamie, I don't know that saying he wanted to be the good guy is the right way to say it. I think Jamie just, he wanted to be a knight and everything that came along with being just a knight from the storybooks. And mm-hmm. he's, whether you call it choices he's made or circumstances he's been put in or a little bit of both, he's just not been that thing. <laughs> uh, yeah. And so it's like, how long could he stand being treated like a villain and frankly, he brought some of that on by the way he's acted before he just decides to say, like, screw it. You know, I'm going to do this. I'm, if people think I'm this way, yep. I'm going to act this way. Yeah. But yeah, no, I, I think that he does have that sarcastic, just kind of a smart A side to him just kind of naturally. I would agree with that. Yeah. I agree. But but we've all got friends like that. Sure. And other people call them assholes and yep. we call them friends. Yeah. Right? Or and we call we call them both sometimes. Who you get along yeah. with, and yeah, yeah, sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, I back to the blackfish. I don't think he's wrong. Uh, like from his, like we have Jamie's POV here. But if we had the blackfish's POV, I don't, I don't think he's, I don't think he's just pushing buttons. I think he literally doesn't believe anything Jamie has to say. Oh, oh, you'll protect. You'll protect the Westerlings. Oh, good one. Right. Yeah, that's, that I, fits with I, I, I really don't think he believes any of it. Yeah, we remember he's seen none of what Jamie's gone through over the past uh, year or so. Nobody's seen it. Yeah. It's in Jamie's head. Yep. I mean, no one understands it. Seriously, doesn't get nobody. Nobody gets it except probably Brienne, maybe a little. Mm-hmm. Even Brienne, not really enough. I mean, Jamie's a transformed individual from what he was. Yeah. And... No one can see that. It's it's in his head. He's the only one that knows. Yeah. And these were your actions. Your actions can can prove it over time. But you know, to to make up for what he's done, it'll take a long time for people to put, form a new opinion of you. Absolutely. Yeah. Especially someone who you'd faced off on the opposite end of the battlefield. You know, right? As those two have. Yeah. It is kind of cute though. How Jamie is trying on all sorts of outfits before his date with with the black. <laughs> do I wear white? Do I wear my you know, gold he's one? Trying to like, uh-huh. Yeah, <laughs> he's kind of because he's like he always admired admired him, right, and respected him. So he's like trying to like impress him or something. Yeah, that is kind of the tragedy of it. Is this is well, it's a minor tragedy that we find out that Jamie had a bit of almost kind of hero worship for Brendan Tully in his a nightly youth. crush. Yeah, yeah. and. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and Brendan just is laying into him. So, uh, yeah, which is like you said, understandable. I started, I, I wrote this down and so I started thinking about it, you know, like Jamie tried to fulfill his promise mm-hmm. to get the girls, right? He went to King's Landing. They were gone. They weren't there. He didn't really have any real control over returning them. Mm-hmm. But did he though? Cause he could have gone out and quested like Brienne did. 
to try yep. to find them. I thought about that too. He didn't try really hard. Mm-hmm. He didn't try as hard as he could have. And if he really, yep. really wanted that black mark off of his conscience and off of people's lists, he could send a raven every once in a while to the blackfish and be like, look, I didn't get them at King's Landing. I'm still looking. Yep. I'm out here. You know, I got a bowl of soup. I'm, I'm out update. here looking. I don't have them yet. Yep. Yeah. I thought about that and too. He didn't do that. He didn't even think he didn't even think about it. Now he did dispatch Brienne to do it, and that's noble, I guess, but you know. Yeah, well he made a know. decision. Maybe, maybe that wasn't really his decision to make. He made a decision that he was gonna go back and take his place as Lord Commander of the King's Guard and and have some yeah. and delegate, basically. Yeah. Yep, you're absolutely right. Um that war council was just a disaster, wasn't it? Oh man, <laughs> those guys. There were there were some interesting ideas in there. there sure but yeah. those, I mean, mostly what it highlighted to me is just how far away these Riverlanders are from being in their pocket. Oh yeah. I mean, a spark is all it will take uh-huh. for these guys. They are ready. They are raring. Yep. <laughs> If they found out they had one more man than the Lannisters in the camp, they might revolt. <laughs> I mean, they're ready. Yeah. Uh, like, and poor Jamie's just yeah. like floundering, like thinking, what was it that he thought that like, oh, my dad's war councils never went like this. Yeah. <laughs> it was hilarious. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. of course the problem being, the difference being is that Tywin had already gained uh, allegiance, obedience, respect, even if it was through, you know, intimidation and uh, less respectable methods of gaining that respect, he still had it, right? And Jamie just kind of came into a situation where he's the new guy. And yeah, people just, well, you know, Adam Marbrand is his friend and stuff like that, but he just doesn't have that authority about him, I think. And plus the situation with the Riverlanders, like you're saying, and Emmon Frey and all that. Well, he doesn't have it. He doesn't earn it. And he hasn't earned it. And frankly, it's not who he is. Mm -hmm. I mean, Tywin would have already had the plan in place coming into this meeting. Yeah. And And he would have told people how it was going to go. He wouldn't have been asking for opinions. And that's just because Tywin was, for all his shitty qualities, was amazing at strategic decisions. Well, and Jamie, Jamie does this say, out in seconds, probably. Yeah, Jamie does say that, you know, Tywin always asked for the opinion of his captains first, so he that's why he tried it. But I agree with you at the same time. I think Tywin did it, and he asked for opinions, but he already knew what he was going to do going into it. Yeah, he was just almost kind of giving them a chance to feel important or something. But I don't know. I, I just watched uh, this movie. One of my favorite hockey movies is called Goon. Uh, <laughs> You've told me about this before, it, but uh, refresh my memory. It's fantastic. Isn't it about a Isn't it about a guy with no skill that just like hurts people? Yeah, and he's he's he find they find out that he's a great fighter and stuff, so they kind of get him on skates, and he becomes you know in what hockey vernacular is called an enforcer, which is a guy who's basically just on the team to intimidate and to rough people up and stuff like that but he's this really Mm -hmm. sweet guy and uh he's just incredibly loyal to his teammates and that's why he fights for him and stuff but he's just this sweet dude it's a fantastic hockey movie it's 
profane. It's vulgar. Uh, it's quite violent, but has a ton of heart. It reminds me of a Kevin Smith movie. Like uh, it's, it's got all that crusty bathroom humor and everything, but at the heart of it are these beautiful, well-written characters. I highly recommend it. Um, but it's Sean William Scott, right? Yes. He plays the goon. Yeah. Yeah. And it's got, uh, how do you say the guy's name? Leave Schreiber, Schreiber, live Schreiber. Schreiber yeah, yeah. He's in it and is fantastic in it. Um, anyways, so they just came out with a sequel goon two. And in, oh, no. in goon two, there's a new, a guy is brought in. It's the owner's son is brought into the team. And because he's the owner's son, he's immediately named captain of the team. And so his first time in the locker room, he gets up and he tries to pump everybody up, you know, and he's like, we're going to win. And he's yelling, <laughs> captain speaking, captain time, everybody listen up. And he's like, put your effing phone oh, away wow. to people and stuff like that. And everyone's just looking at him like he's an idiot. Right. And uh, yeah, it just, to it totally just fit because of reading this chapter about Jamie and trying to demand that respect as the new guy. It's not an apples to apples comparison, uh, but Jamie's kind of that guy that's coming in and trying to run things the way his dad did, but with one major missing component, and that is earned respect. So, all right, all right, listen up, Captain speaking, Captain time. Woo! Woo! Fuck yeah! That's what I'm talking about. Sports. I care. I fucking care. We're gonna do this together. Highlanders on three. One, two, three. Highlanders. My line start. Yeah, yeah. Good comparison. Go see Goon. I assume it's on, in it's the on end Netflix. of in the end of Goon Two, I assume he earns that respect. Hmm. You'll have to watch it. Mm, and see. I don't know. All right. Uh, Go watch. Goon is on Netflix, as is Goon Two, and Goon okay. Two. This guy, this captain guy, is now my head cannon cast pick for Davin Lannister. Go have a look at it. Oh, we'll see all why. right. Yeah. Okay. Speaking of Davin Lannister, he must be digesting a bloody mammoth <laughs> because wine helps with rhyme and phrase digestion. Again, <laughs> Davin Lannister. Uh, Maybe not yeah. someone you want uh, babysitting your kids or something, but great guy to hang out with. Yeah. Oh man. What a good one. Yeah. Uh, uh I'll just say one more thing. Uh you know, the River Run isn't isn't really in that bad a shape. They are surrounded, mm -hmm. but their castle is incredibly difficult to take. They will do. Jamie has a very real reason besides keeping his oath of wanting to to sell this without fighting. They would lose heavy, heavy numbers. Yeah, Brendan trying to do this. Brendan is absolutely right. But Jamie's also right. Ninety percent of those people they lose are going to be Riverlanders and Freys. Yeah. So because <laughs> obviously you know. they're going to put them in first. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's all I had. Okay, cool. Uh, that was a good chapter. It's fun reading. It's always fun to read these uh, Jamie and Brienne chapters back to back. And then we find that the Cersei chapters usually aren't far behind. So it's fun to keep getting that triangle even in the book order. Um, indeed, indeed. Let's jump over to the final chapter in our episode coverage. 
that's John 8. That's you, Scab. All right, John. Where we're going up north where the winter's cold and the icicles bloom like the bluest rose. We haven't met his mom, but we love his wolf. He's John Snow. John is about to let another wildling through the wall. But this one back through the other way, into the wild. Uncertain land of the haunted forest north of the wall. And this one too, a woman. The wildling princess, in fact, Val. Her mission is to find Tormund Giant's Bane and bring him back to treat with John, or failing that, at least offer John's terms. More on that later. It's a risk, of course. If Val doesn't return, Stannis will be none too happy. But I'd love to read another lover's quarrel between John and Stanny Boy, to be honest. So maybe she won't come back. Anyway, Val and John go onto the wall, say some playful goodbyes, John making her promise to return, and her warning not to let the red woman near the child. That's, uh, that's, uh, Craster's boy, uh, monster, they call him. She knows who he is, she says. John isn't so sure, but nevertheless, Val disappears in her bearskin pelt, leaving John to wonder if he has sent her off to die like he did his rangers. Back in his quarters now, John's breakfast is interrupted by Bowen Marsh, Ophel Yarwick, and Septon Celador. Before they can complain about their own stuff, John airs his grievances. Yo, Yarwick, man. Is the night fort ready for Queen Solis or what? What is taking so long? Yarwick insists that it isn't done done, not comfortable, but she could move in. He needs more workers to finish it up. When John suggests that their new friend Woon Woon the giant help, Yarwick is hesitant. They eat human flesh, I think. Marsh jumps in next. He's not happy that Ed and Iron Emmett, the current Lord Steward and Master at Arms, respectively, are on their way out to yet another castle that John is opening. And worse, that Satin and Leathers are taking their places. One a whore, and the other a wildling. John's answer is pretty simple. They are capable of doing the jobs, and what they were doesn't matter. They are now brothers of the Night's Watch. John's frustration grows. Next, yeah, Marsh wants to know why they are wasting men guarding corpses in the ice cells. Simple again. John is hoping the corpses will rise from the dead so they can learn from them. You need to know your enemies. Why do these men not get this? John's tension grows. Finally, Val. John makes no show of it. He intends to offer solace to Tormund, to his hundreds, his thousands, if he has them, in exchange for his help defending the wall. Predictable as ever, the three men opposite him are outraged. Again, this seems obvious to John. The living will need to fight the dead. Tormund is the living, and so, as it happens, are the potential thousands flocking to Hardhome with Mother Mole, who has had a vision with the promise of a fleet coming to take them across the narrow sea to safety. So John wants to save them, too. More arguing. John's blood pressure rises. He explains Hardhome as well. You see, Hardhome not only has a history of tragedy, but it's also unlivable in its current state, according to Cotter Pike. There's no shelter, no food, the wild has retaken it. They will die by the thousands. Thousands of enemies, thousands of wildlings, replies Marsh. Ugh, Theoden springs to mind. What can men do against such reckless hate? John is just at the end of his rope. These guys are just not getting it. He flexes his hand, composes himself, stays calm, and again explains, These dead will rise as whites with black hands and pale blue eyes, and they will come for us. John dismisses them, and the chapter ends. And, uh, 
You're just <laughs> you're just left with a sense in this chapter of like, why does no one get what we're dealing with here? I just want to like grab Bowen Marsh by his jowls. And just yeah. be like, listen. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 You know, I, I've continued. Um, sometimes, sometimes people don't get the big picture because they're too busy dealing with the minutia of yeah. things that come at them every day. Mm-hmm. I'm watching the West Wing, um, which I think I've said before. And uh, towards the end of the series, you know, they're coming to the end of the eight term presidency that the, the character has there. And, one of the main characters has, has had to leave for a time and they've had to replace him because he had a heart attack and he comes back and he just watches everybody for a day. Mm-hmm. And he just, he looks at what they're dealing with and like how stressed out they are and running around crazy trying to put out fires and take care of things. And he just writes on the board 365. And then he invites them all back in the office and he's like, we have this presidency, we have this job for one more year. I'm sure the things that you guys think you dealt with today, they seemed important at the time. But we have all these things we want to do. Don't forget those things. Don't be distracted by all this other crap that's happening. You have to drive the narrative. You have to do the things that you need to do, that you wanted to do in this office. Right. Don't be distracted by all this other crap. Mm-hmm. And that's what John is, is, is at here. It's like, you have one real job here to protect the realms of men from the others. Don't be distracted by food counts and, you know, whores becoming brothers and all this other stuff. It doesn't matter. This is like, look, look at what matters. Yep. It's uh, I like that. It just must be so frustrating. Yeah, it's got to be incredibly frustrating that. Yeah, just these stereotypes have built up over the years. You know, John brings up the fact that, yeah, I've got, I'm. I've got a former whore as my new steward, but then he brings up the, you know, the rapers and the murderers and everyone else who's yeah. been in the Night's Watch. And <clears throat> yep, I I, I do I do love yeah. seeing him just breaking down these walls as much as he can and doing it with such reckless abandon. And obviously, I say reckless abandon in the sense that he's making very calculated decisions. Um, but doing so knowing that people are not going to agree with him. And he, yeah, it seems like his number of allies is diminishing daily. Yeah. Yet he persists. Yeah. We've talked about that. It's yet he persists. It's not about necessarily that he's making the wrong choices, but he's, he's doing it in a way that is not easy to reconcile against for these people. Mm Mm-hmm. Help, help, help them come around to liking you, man. Don't try so hard to be disliked. Yeah. You know? Yeah, we've said that before. Um, but this chapter made me side with him a lot more. <laughs> and yeah. I feel like I've given Bowen Marsh a lot of credit uh, in previous chapters. But I feel like John was awfully patient with them <laughs> in this one. And, man, they were just, they were just being insufferable. Yep. Hard to reach. Mm-hmm. But, you know, to that end, you know, I don't have a problem with satin or leathers. Satin and leather, it's kind of... Hey! Both I, George did that on purpose. Hey, look at that. I didn't even think um, about that. <laughs> uh, it's not that I have a problem with satin and leathers getting these jobs, but 
if he wanted to gain allies, mm-hmm. he could have promoted somebody that was like on the fence about him. Right. You know, and like gain some support. Like, oh, you know what? Maybe he's, maybe he can make these choices. You know, mm-hmm. maybe he is a good guy. It wouldn't be so bad to make some new friends, you know? Absolutely. And and not only is he losing friends just through his decision making, but he's actively sending them away. Like, I feel like Emmett is probably still an ally and he's being yeah. sent to another castle along with Ed. And yeah. Yeah. No, you're right. That he already sent away. He already sent away Pippin Bren and Sam. I mean, but in the last chapter, Jamie talks about, uh, you know, all the men at River Run being able to take the black. And I almost want Edmure to accept his terms just so we get some more help to John at the wall. I totally thought of that, too. I'm like, oh, can you imagine? <laughs> Brendan. How relieved he would feel if he got 80 people or something. Yeah. Fighting men. Uh, and uh, yeah. obviously we find out that Brendan Tully himself doesn't think too fondly of John. Uh, painted through, you know, stereotypes raised by his, or prejudices raised by his niece, but uh, yeah, still having a man like him at the wall would be helpful. Oh man! Anyway, um, go ahead. The quote that stuck out to me the most is regarding what we've already talked about. That says, "I am the sword that guards the realm of men, and in the end, that must be worth more than one man's honor." Oh. Yeah. You said you've got a couple of things? Few. Um his father would have never approved, which I think it maybe is maybe is related to that quote you just uh said. It was, yep. It's just it's just too bad, you know, that John always has this around his neck. He he's a at this point, you know, still a child in some people's eyes, but a man doing a man's job and doing it well. And he's still got this weight around his neck, as probably a lot of people do you know, worrying about his father's approval. Mm-hmm. John, it's okay. Your father approves. Um, what, one of the things that, that I just, I, I feel like I'm, I read it over like 10 times trying to figure out like what it was that I'm missing. But if Mel knows who the baby is, why would the baby be in trouble? Like that, that was the whole point of doing the swap, right? Why is Val afraid that Mel knows that the baby is not, you know, the child of the king, Mance? Right. Yeah. Um, I think she might be worried that just kind of out of anger, she'll just kill the baby. Um, Mm -hmm. Or she might be able to somehow use her magic to find the baby or leave the north to go track it down or something like that but your question's valid it's just that whole conversation it seemed like they're trying to protect monster this child from something that doesn't feel like a threat right. yeah monster yeah. um i mean if mel knows and she's gonna go search for the baby then that won't affect monster either um if mel knows and she realizes that its blood can't help raise a stone dragon or whatever the hell it is that she's trying to do this week um, you know that it shouldn't be in trouble. It, it was just a a puzzling. I'll be interested to see if the fandom has something for me that I'm missing, but it didn't make sense to me. Yeah, no, I can see why. You'd think that her not knowing would actually be more dangerous to the baby, right? 
Yes. Uh, yeah. That's precisely. what you're saying. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah. Right. Thank you for carrying it to its logical end that I wasn't doing. Yeah. It's, he should walk up to her and tell her, this is not him. <laughs> right? <laughs> like, kill it. If, he, if she doesn't know who he is, then it'd be good if she told them. Right. You know, you, you wouldn't have wanted that right away because then she could have gone chasing after him. But now, you know, mm-hmm. now the baby's out of her reach, right? I mean, Maybe that's what Val's afraid of. Maybe she believes that the dark powers that she can't is, actually reach out and there is some sort of get reach. him somehow. Yeah, yeah. All right. All right. I'll let that satiate me for now. Uh, the other thing I had is, uh, uh, well, I, I still got a couple more. Learning the giant history. Uh, I've harped on this before. Seems important. Can you get somebody else to do it? Because somebody else should help you. You know, learn those stories, learn the giant history, get somebody to speak the language, uh, do all those things. You can't do it all yourself. Um, you got a bunch of wild things. One... There's got to be someone who can exactly step in and do that. Somebody. Yeah. Um, the last one, really, that of note is there's a lot of talk at the end of this chapter about you know these people at Hardholm and these wildlings out there are going to die eventually, and they're going to rise up. Will they? We don't know much. We don't. But like, my impression is that that the others have to do something to the dead corpses to make them rise up, right? That's what I agree. Do you you think that they just happen? No, I do not think that they just die and then all of a sudden wake up with blue eyes. I think there's something going on with with others. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Giving them a just special seems... kiss or something like that. Right. It just feels rather assumptive to just be like, yeah, they'll come against us as soon as they're dead. Right. Mm-hmm. Doesn't... Uh, anyway. Um, yeah. Uh, that's pretty much all I got, I guess. Let's move on. It's late. It is late. Uh, let's see. Well... If we're done with John, that ends the regular portion of our podcast. Before yes. we transition over to Davos After Dark, we like to do this every other episode or so, but send a quick shout out and thank you to our Patreon supporters. Right? Absolutely. So, uh, Scad, do you want to kick us off? Sure. First, we got our dirty cab driver level. Josh C., Warden of the Reach Around, Lord of Littering and, Littering and, Littering and, Smoking the Others. Yep. Jacob M. Lady Fat-Ass Red. Jeff H. Archmaster June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes. Jeremy L. Jamie K. Donneris. Sarah from Texas. Cinder at the Citadel. Colin U. Uh, Sarah Stormthea Snow, The Bastard Storm. Austin C. Heather H. B-Word, The Queen Beyond the Wall. And Blood Rainer. Blood Reiner. Blood Reiner, excuse me. That's all right. Uh, we have Team John member Misa, our queen of gifts and beauty. Indeed. Thank you. Thank you, patron supporters. Yes, thank you for all of your support. Okay, well, uh, that concludes the regular non-spoiler-filled section of our podcast we're now if you're a first-time listener moving into the spoiler filled section 
which we call Davos After Dark, where we, where we will be discussing events that occur beyond what we've read today. We will be theorizing and uh, discussing everything that has been revealed in these books so far and many things that have not been revealed. So uh, if you are not wanting to hear that type of thing, run away now, run and hide, get back to your lives. Uh, but run if away. not, run away. Yep, we'll be back in three weeks. Don't worry about it. We're still here. We're still around. We'll see you soon. Uh, but we would love to have you join us for this ride through Davos after dark. So let's begin. Davos after dark. Yeah, absolutely. Where do you want to start, man? Okay. We tried to just kind of avoid it through the regular portion of the cast, but let's talk, uh, let's talk Frey Pie, man. Frey Pies! <laughs> what I call the other, other, but not other white meat. Great description. <laughs> it really is good. Uh, so, the strong implication is made that Wyman Manderley grabbed, abducted the three Freys who were staying at... Uh, White Harbor. Let me see if I remember their names. Jared, Simon, and Rhaegar, I think. Sure. And who had gone... Rhaegar was one for sure. Yeah, they'd gone missing, uh, going from White Harbor to Winterfell to hook up with the Freys. And we remember that uh, Theon, from a Theon chapter, that they sent out search parties to try to find these three guys. They were never found. Um, the implication is strongly made that Wyman Manderley had abducted these three men and cooked them into pies that he had then fed to the Boltons in the other phrase. And himself in generous portions. And he took the largest portions for himself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And uh Roos's wife ate three portions of cousin nephews some of some sorts, yeah, whatever some they sort were of family member. Yep. Uh uh, interesting that um, Wyman brings up the story of the rat cook, right? Yes, he does. Yep. He asks Abel Mance to sing the song about the rat cook, which was a guy up at the wall, correct? A night yes. watchman who had um, broken the sacred law of guest right and killed someone who he had offered guest right to and uh, killed them out of vengeance or, or something like that. And as punishment, the gods turned him into a giant rat who could only survive by eating his own offspring. Isn't that just lovely? Yes. Um, yes. And so obviously we see the parallel in the story. The rat cook, he did kill those people and he'd cooked them. He'd baked them into some sort of food and served it to the family members of those people, just as Wyman's doing here. Um, yeah, I mean, it, as as giveaways go, this is a dead giveaway. Yeah. This happened. I don't, I don't even really consider this a theory so much as like, yeah, this is real. This is happening. To yeah. take this one step further, I never realized this till I read it this way, till I read it this time, but by Manderly doing this, so first of all, sorry, the phrase broke the law of guest right, right? When they when they did the Red Wedding, right? Guest yes. right was broken. Yep. 
just like the rat cook did. Mm -hmm. And just like the rat cook, what happened to the rat cook, the phrase were forced to eat their own young. Um, yes. Amy's Frey, who is there in particular, was Rhaegar Frey's father. And so he ate his own child, just like the rat cook had to do. So I, mm. probably other people had picked that up, but uh, I totally missed that, that Wyman took it one step further and was making them eat their own offspring, uh, just like the rat cook. Interesting. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Now, did... I suppose he didn't. Did Wyman break guess right by murdering the phrase? No, because... Because he gave them gifts? He gave them gifts. Departing? Yes. Yeah. And part of the whole guest right process is that when you give the when you give the guest a parting gift, that's kind of you saying it's been great having you, but uh, you're on your time own. to go. <laughs> yeah. And we know that he gave them horses uh, for their yes. trip to Winterfell. So at that point, Correct. guest right was absolved. I guess you could say absolved. Yeah, but really, <laughs> it's kind of breaking the spirit of the rule. <laughs> A little bit. Hey, man. Anyway. He did his thing. He did indeed. Okay. Uh, it's 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 awesome. Uh, I love it. Uh, the fact that he's chanting Rat Cook as he's leaving the room to go to the War Council, drunk and just stuffed to the button. I mean, you'd think people would put that together, but I don't know. He doesn't seem worried about it. Yeah. It seems... Um... Radio Westeros comments a lot on this in their North Remembers episode and how after this moment, Wyman just seems to kind of go willy nilly, almost like he's done what he, he came give to a do fuck. Yeah. do what you want <laughs> yeah. to me now because I got my revenge. I got what I wanted, whatever. Uh, yeah, he's he's got his air back. Yep. He, he is kind of treating this kind of like the old men from the clans. That I don't think we've had this moment yet. Maybe we have. We will next uh, uh, chat. Maybe next Theon. Maybe the. Oh, maybe ne next couple. I don't know. Yeah, some sometime soon. I think uh, where they're just talking about this is our last winter. We're coming here to die. Yeah. Right, and Wyman's like, Nah, man. Let's let's make a go of this. Let's <laughs> let's cause some havoc. My heir is back. He can run the thing. I'm done. I'm gonna die of a heart attack soon anyway. Let's let's knock this thing out. Sugar, we're going down swinging. Yeah. All right, love it. Swing away, Meryl, swing away. Okay, uh, so that's Frey Pie. Let's talk about something that was interesting to both of us. Uh, the the uh, mentioning in the Brienne chapter of a sign that used to hang over the Crossroads Inn, a huge sign of a three-headed dragon done in a black color. Um, and then after the war, which we call the, the dance of the dragons, the civil war in Westeros, that sign was taken down and torn apart because of course the, the, the black dragon was the sigil of the black fires. Um, and they tore up the pieces and threw them all in the river. And it says, they point out that some of those pieces washed up on the quiet aisle but they had been rusted red. 
right? So Skad and I both thought that was interesting, interesting imagery and everything. Uh, and I know you looked into a little bit, Skad. Did you come up with anything that you found cool? Well, so just uh disclaimer, I've had conversations with people before on Twitter and stuff about how easy it is to seem like you're stealing in this fandom because stuff is written in so many places. Sure, I don't ever yeah. intend to steal from anybody. I frequently do not do a great job of sourcing what I find. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this stuff can be found in lots of different places. These are certainly not my ideas. Uh, this one particularly I think I got at the Citadel, which is part of uh, Westeros.org, uh, I think. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, there's, there's, or maybe this this might have been from the, the chat boards, actually, that I was reading. I can't remember. But, um, you know, there's a few things. One of them could be, like, it represents the Golden Company. Yeah. That went across the sea as Black Dragons, like supporters of the Black Dragon, and are coming home mm-hmm. now as supporters of the Red Dragon, right? The Aegon, the true heir, right? If you believe that. Um, it could actually represent, some people say, Aegon himself. Yes. Um, as like a Blackfire mm-hmm. um, coming back now as pretending to be, you know, it's it's rusted it's rusted red but it's not a real red right right and so he's he's uh you know he's not a real real targaryen he's a black targaryen and he's pretending um i think that's the one i read too and i think that's the one i subscribe to the most yeah it's it's kind of the the most interesting mm-hmm. um i think there were others out there those were the two that kind of spoke to me the most um you know i mean part of it is like this is so you know this happens in a brienne chapter in feast what is that even before you've even met have you even have you even met him yet no, you haven't you haven't even well, met him yet Aegon, <laughs> no. i mean mm-hmm. so like it's it, it it's it's really far removed narratively from anything that's going on absolutely so it, it could just be a coincidence mm-hmm. but it you know it's fun it's interesting it is yeah it's fun yeah it's fun yeah those were the ones I, I liked the most as well. Uh, I think that if I were to pick one, it would be the Aegon one. But I did, and I almost hesitate to bring this up because it's so tinfoily scad, but I did make a potential Mance Rhaegar connection. Oh, cool. Do it. It's so tinfoily, though. Go down with that shit. The Mance Rhaegar haters are going to have a, they're just going to love this. So part of my Mance Rhaegar theory, and again, to echo what you've said, this could have been said by others in the fandom too. I know the Mance Rhaegar theory is not one that I, that is original to me, but I think maybe some of the aspects of it might have been something we kind of developed here on the podcast. I don't know. I wouldn't presume to say all that, but okay. But one of the things that I've thought about in regards to the Mance Rhaegar theory is that the person who was actually at the Battle of the Trident was not Rhaegar Targaryen himself, but it was someone else in his armor, perhaps even glamoured. Uh, you know, they make a very make it very clear that he had rubies in his breastplate, and often rubies we've seen in the Melisandre chapter and everything are associated with glamours, right? Yep. So uh, you've got someone there, 
that is acting as Rhaegar Targaryen, but is not actually Rhaegar. Rhaegar's perhaps already on his way up north to be Mance or whatever. Um, so he's this guy who's glamoured or dressed as Rhaegar is struck down by Robert's Warhammer. The rubies fly everywhere. And it talks about how people like rushed to that site in the river and were like trying to find the rubies to kind of um, rob them and take them for themselves. That could have provided something of a distraction. Uh, this body of Rhaegar, which that is one of the mysteries of A Song of Ice and Fire, is we don't have a conclusive uh, story as to what happened to Rhaegar's body, at least yep. as far as I can find. Um, a lot of people just assume he was cremated uh, in the Targaryen fashion. But what if uh, this body was actually taken to the Quiet Isle, the rusted red dragon being taken to the Quiet Isle? Um, they mentioned that one of the rubies from the breastplate was not found. That ruby stayed with that person to preserve the glamour as long as they needed to. And this guy actually perhaps survived um, and has been living quietly on Quiet Isle for the last however many years to preserve the secret. Um, they talked about how the elder brother was a healer. Maybe he's even the one that helped fix this fake Rhaegar up. So that's something, a crazy little place that my mind went to. And uh, I fully acknowledge it's tinfoilness. Well, uh, I don't know. Tinfo I mean, it's certainly possible. Um, what? How does it relate, though, to the black dragon turning red in the rust? R Rhaegar would have been a red dragon the whole time, right? Yeah. What? What is? The, how does it? How does that part translate? You know, or does it? It doesn't really. It really doesn't. Okay. I just thought of it more of the rusted red being, as you mentioned, kind of a fake red, uh, red mm -hmm. washing up onto the quiet aisle. Right, right. Yeah, I guess so. Because yeah, because he's he's a fake. He's he's a fake. Uh, mm -hmm. Maybe maybe they maybe they put a black dragon in there in the armor to beat Rhaegar. Um, I don't know who it would be. I haven't done no, obviously no research to see who they might have done and said, "This is how you can get back in good graces. Right. Pretend to be Rhaegar." Like, and then he was a black dragon who turned up red mm -hmm. because he was. Uh, yeah. yeah, that could Who be knows? one side of it That's too. I even batted around the idea of maybe the elder brother was actually the guy who glamoured Rhaegar. And I tried to look for like similar physical features and nothing. The only the guy was reasonably young, wasn't he? Yeah, I think so. Like younger than Rhaegar would be? Probably. Um, the only similarity I found is that they're both mentioned as tall. So yeah, yeah, not enough there. Shaved head though, right? Yep. Elder brother. Mm -hmm. um, actually, I guess probably all those guys are. Maybe. Uh, I don't know. Um, Interesting. Cool. Cool. Well, we kind of skirted around this really obvious reveal too, but let's uh, let's talk about some of the stuff that comes up in the Jamie chapter. In particular, we've got Tom of Sevens or Tom of Seven Streams yeah. uh, being the uh, the musician or the, the player that's with Ryman Frey and then later with... Uh, with Jamie and Edmure. And of course you remember why Edmure is not fond of Tom. Yes. Yes. Of course the, uh, 
he made fun of his wiener as a trout or a worm or something. A a floppy fish or something? Yeah, something. A a story got out in the tabloids of the Riverlands that Ed Muir had gone off with some girl and he was so drunk that he wasn't able to perform. perform. And so Tom wrote that rather embarrassing song about him. Uh, And that's interesting because we now have a spy from the Brotherhood Without Banners, of which Lady Stoneheart is a part, um, in the Riverlands, inserted into the Frey Lannister camp, and later, as we'll see, into River Run itself, hopefully. Yeah. Right. And um, we know that while Thomas Evans stays there, um, the crown that the whore was wearing, the Queen of Whores, mm-hmm. ends up in Lady Stoneheart's possession, I believe, uh, yep. later. Yep. Which is funny because Jamie says you can't take it. You can't it take it. It's not like Ryman took it anyway. Yep. <laughs> um, or, or he didn't, and it's evidence that the whore is also part of that group and reported back um with the crown with the crown uh-huh. right one of one of the two now that's interesting that i hadn't thought of which the, the whore being part of the being could be we, we don't have any evidence of it uh, oh, i mean we don't i don't think we've even ever heard that there is a whore with barracks group right or one that might pretend sure. to be one sure um but it, you know it could be um it certainly could just be the rhyme and took it as well um but you know, we, we we don't need her to be revealing the location because Thomas Evans could could be doing that. Yeah, and, um, and he obviously but, did get a message out quickly to them because Ryman does depart from the camp and his dies hung, like immediately. <laughs> yeah, he's hung yeah. very soon after, caught and hung by the Brotherhood. So, yeah, Tom gets the word out quick, and him being there, you know, so much that could go on. I, he, one question I have is, what did Tom and Edmure talk about after Jamie left? Do you think they talked? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know, but but if but if, if Edmure's taking this deal and Jamie's already promised he can go back to uh, you know, the Lannister lands in the West, mm-hmm. um, you know, this I think maybe the first time I heard I think a lot of people have talked about this. I think the first place I heard this was on a Radio Westeros episode where they talked about the Brotherhood Without Banners and what they're doing right now at the end of, of the action that we have and what their next thing might be uh, in the action going forward. And I think they, they say, yeah, like they're they're They know Edmure is going back to Lannister lands. They're totally going to ambush and free him, free him mm-hmm. uh, as well as Jane, who may be carrying Rob's child. Um, and um, that's that. Yeah, you're right. And woo, that could be cool. You've also got the potential of Tom informing Edmure, listen, when you go talk to Brendan, tell him this and this and this and this. And that could be why Brendan's been so hard to find is that when he escaped, he's now with the Brotherhood. Um, could be. And they're helping to hide him. Um, yeah. Could be. One thing that I read, this again, in the spirit of attributing kind of loosely, (laughs) because I don't remember where I read this, uh, 
someone brought up the fact that with um, Tom, I actually think it was Radio Westeros, Tom being in River Run, he could help set up and facilitate um, a Red Wedding 2.0. This being alluded to uh, in the last Jamie chapter where Davin Lannister said that he was going to marry a Frey, his stoat. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Um, and they'd probably do that at River Run. So perfect time to get back at both the Freys and the Lannisters when you're at a Frey and Lannister wedding, right? Not only does Davin say he'll marry his stoat, but he says he'll do it because he doesn't want another Red Wedding. Uh-huh. And wouldn't that be <laughs> And wouldn't that crazy? be, yeah, right? Would not be well done by George. Mm-hmm. Yeah, could totally organize something like that. Right. Okay. Uh, It'd be interesting, though. I mean, if they were to do that, it would be, you know, the, the context of the Red Wedding is that there's a war going on. Mm-hmm. This was a killing blow, almost, mm-hmm. or, or thought of, thought of to be, of one of the armies. And a Red Wedding 2 would literally be revenge. Yeah, Pure but revenge. you're going to get murdered for it. You're going to get... Like, you know, like this isn't going to turn the battle or the tide of the war or anything, probably. Right. It's just revenge. So it'd be a little different, but. Yep. Nope. You're absolutely right. All right. Um, Let's maybe do one more here. Sure. Uh, And let's do it regarding a question you had. (laughs) You asked me in the notes uh, regarding a potential Balon Swan versus Dark Star. Oh yeah. A fight to the finish. And you asked me, am I the only one rooting for Balon here? And I thought, well, I kind of like Balon and I thought Balon would win in a fight, but let's see what people think. So we did a little uh, poll on Twitter and Facebook and on Patreon. And, you know, I actually haven't checked the Facebook one. Uh, recently but i know that the twitter poll was resoundingly scad in favor of dark star yeah if something like 60 30 split saying that he would would be 60 40 which i think is what it was 60 38 excuse me yeah i think or that's what i saw it last i don't math good (laughs) uh facebook when i looked and it wasn't that recent either but uh when i looked it was the opposite it was like 58 42 the other way mm-hmm. it, it seemed like it seemed like people on facebook thought thought uh thought swan would win and i didn't see the patreon results what were the patreon results i i'm unprepared it's <laughs> <laughs> all right uh but but it's but it's one of the funny things that was on twitter was it felt like well People had a lot of fun with it. There were some really fun comments. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe it was uh, uh, King Ares. It was, I think he's the mythical astronomy by some fire guy. Mm-hmm. Commented about, just commented about how awesome Darkstar is. And we know this because he declared it <laughs> very dramatically to an 11-year-old. <laughs> it was just brilliant. Who he failed, was, who he failed to kill. <laughs> yeah. It was pretty brilliant. Uh, that was, it was a good poll to do. I liked it. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Uh, if it does come down to that, I, I can see it going both ways. I think Balon, you know, he's the proven fighter. He's in the Kingsguard for a reason. Of course, Boris Blunt is also in the Kingsguard, but, uh, that's neither here nor there. 
Um, but I can also see kind of a Vardis Egan type deal situation happening, you know, where the classic knight is bested by the wily anti-knight kind of guy. In that case, it was Braun, right? Perhaps. Do we think Darkstar's wily? I don't know. We just, yeah, like, like you, <laughs> like your anecdote pointed out, we don't know anything much about him besides what he says. The Sand Snakes think he's dangerous for whatever that's worth. But would he win in a one-on-one fight with a knight? Yeah, I, I mean, I, somebody said this on Twitter too in response to the poll. I'll take Hota's opinion, which is this guy would be tough. Yeah, he's. I think he actually says at one point he would sit and wait for me mm-hmm. to come to him, like he wouldn't like Eris, un, unlike charging in. So I, mm-hmm. I, the Vardis Egan thing. I don't. I don't know that he would attack dumbly. Sure. He might go on the offensive, but it, it sounds like he's not. He's. He, I mean, we're taking Hota's opinion, and he's never seen him even move. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you know, who knows? But yeah, I'll take that. I like Hota. I trust him. I do too. So anyways, thanks for participating in that poll. We'll try to do more fun things like that that just give you guys a voice and give us all something to chat about. Yeah. Be silly about. Yeah. Um, You know, we had a few more things called out, but uh, I think we're coming to the end of things for this one. (laughs) We're pretty over time. I've got one that I like that I'll, uh, I'll throw up somewhere at writings or on Patreon or something. Go ahead and bring it up. But, no, no, it's fine. It's uh, it's not, it's not big. Just a little thing I noticed. But uh, yeah, let's let's move on. Okay. Well, that that moving on would be finishing for the for this episode. So thank you everybody for joining us. Uh, we've got episode sixty seven coming out in three weeks. As we, you know, I'm looking at the remaining chapters, and we're we're coming into the home stretch here on Feast Dance. It's uh. It's been a ton of fun, and I've had a ton of fun tonight. Hope you guys have as well. Um, so my sign-off tonight will be, oh my goodness, imagine this. Matt's got some song lyrics for his sign-off. There's a, there's a song by Ben Folds 5 that is called Jane. And uh, I thought that the lyrics were rather poignant considering our subject matter in Jane Pool tonight. It says, Indeed. Jane, so this is Matt signing off with some lyrics, some counsel to Jane. Benfold says, Jane, be Jane. You're better that way. Not when you're trying, imitating something you think you saw. Uh, you're worried there might not be anything at all inside, but that you're worried should tell you that's not right. You've had it harder than anyone could know, so hard to let it go. But it's your life, and you can decorate it as you like. Beneath the paint and armor, in your eyes, the truth still shines. So Jane, be Jane. Scat. But maybe not on your wedding night, or Ramsey will kill you. Uh, Good point. <laughs> my sign-off is uh, I'm going to issue Order 66 uh, for our 66th episode. Hey. Uh, I, I order those that follow us on Twitter to go read uh, Katrina's uh, defense of Cersei Lannister. Mm-hmm. Um, she tweeted out a big long thing kind of explaining things maybe from Cersei's perspective a little bit and why she is the way she is. And um, I thought it was a, a great read. So if you follow us, I think Matt retweeted it. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, go check that out if you can. It, was, it would have been uh, on January 19th or 18th. Um, but uh, if you can go find it, it's awesome. Yep. Uh, 
a good defense. So check that out. That's all I got. All right. Good night, everybody. Good night, Scad. Thanks, Kalasar. See ya. Good night. What, what what did you do? I have no idea. I have no idea. No, I mean to fix I, it. Did you offer up a prayer or? Uh, yeah, just you know, sacrificed a quick uh, animal. Cool. And Looks like a roadrunner an or like a hare. Uh, yeah, it was a hare actually. Quick animal. Um, oh. Yeah, just I just have an altar here in my office, and you know, ceremonial uh, blade. Oh, your office. You keep it very business-like. Oh, yeah. It's... Yeah, it's just got to be expedited and... You just never know when you'll need one. Well, I guess you do it enough that it's just like, this is very... This is a transaction. We just got to get this done. It's a pretty common thing in, like, Mormon homes. Yeah, Um, right. No, yeah, I know. You know, I live here. I know. (laughs) You get one for your kids on their, like, 13th birthday. They get to keep one in their room. I got to admit, 13 seems early. That's almost... That's almost going to the... Uh, levels of, uh, uh, you know, Grey Worm sacrificing his puppy. <laughs> well, but that feels early. Learn sometime. Yeah, yeah, sometime. Sometime. So, did you see what David Harbour's been doing on Twitter? This is a total. I saw note. something like taking senior pictures with people or something. Is this. <laughs> yeah, like, so some girl asked him. Or she like tweeted out and said it would be awesome if if David Harbor was in my senior photos with me or something like that, and he came uh-huh. back and said, <clears throat> "If you get this many thousand retweets of this tweet, I'll come out and take your senior pictures with you." But I get to wear one of your. He like put these stipulations like I get to wear one of your school sweaters and I get to hold a trombone for the pictures, <laughs> and she did it. They got, she got the retweets and he did it. He flew out to her and took her senior pictures with her. And you can see him on the internet of him sitting there with a trombone in his hand and her, this girl's senior pictures. So I saw one of the pictures. Go ahead. Well, he's doing another one now too. Oh, that's Uh, what I was going to ask. You said what he's been doing as if it's like an ongoing thing. Yeah. So another person came to him afterwards on Twitter and said, will you officiate our wedding? And so he did what he thought would be upping the ante. And he said, you've got to get like 125,000 retweets of this or something like an astronomical number. And, uh, and then, you know, he laid out some other things like I get to, you know, if you get that and as long as it works with the shooting schedule, I'll fly out and do it. He goes, I'm not like, I can't, I'm not like licensed or whatever it is to officiate weddings, but I'll get whatever I need to get and I'll do it. And he got, after like three days, they had like 130,000 retweets. (laughs) Oh my God. So he's going to do it. Just like, what a cool guy. (sighs) What a cool guy. He's setting himself up for some hard times. I think if he keeps this up, but uh. the world is such a weird place. Like, think about it. He's famous. Mm-hmm. So I'm just going to like, like, like 10 years ago, 15 years ago, would anyone have had like the testicular fortitude 
to like call up a celebrity and be like, "Hey, would you would you think about marrying right. me and my husband or me and my uh-huh. like?" No one would do that. But with the crazy world today, with social media and the way you can just easily, in a drunken moment, at somebody in a tweet, like the world is your oyster. You can do like all these things just kind of flow out of people that would never even been brought up before. It's crazy. It's it's it is it's nuts and it's also really cool it's cool to see guys using their celebrity to do these little tiny things that just make people happy yeah it is it, yeah yeah it is it's cool especially from someone like david harbour who's been kind of he's he's not had like a super leading man role has he you know more no. about filmography and, and that, stuff than i do he's kind I of just he's been kind of a working actor his yeah, whole career, yeah, he's right? had a good career. Yeah, he's had a good right. career, he's... but he's not like a superstar. Um, but right. he's about to be. I mean, he's now cast as Hellboy, and I'm sure it will Hellboy lead to and other of, things. And... Of course, you know, Stranger Things obviously is a phenomenon right. now. Right. right. It's cool to see him doing little things like that. Yeah, I agree. It's a crazy world, man. Uh, that was completely meaningless as far as eh. the podcast goes, but it was fun. That's what we do. Yep, gotta have one in every episode. Um, <laughs> hey, Blood Riders, hope you enjoyed this first episode back. We had some fun music as always. So, let's go through them. We had Squirm by my favorite band, the Dave Matthews Band, off of their album Big Whiskey and the Grugrux King. Uh, we also had Song Jane by Ben Folds 5. Their album is the unauthorized biography of Reinhold Messner. And then finally, of course, the return of Davos Finger's favorite song, The Crossroads by Bone Thugs and Harmony from their pinnacle hip-hop album, East 1999 Eternal. Love you guys. Can't wait to chat with you next time. See ya. Mm-hmm.